You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What you're really doing is denying one of your children the opportunity to live a wonderful and advantaged life. You're a lucky little girl and very expensive. Trust me, a lot of favors. Christina, darling, I'm going to make a perfect life for you. Are you having a happy birthday, Christina, darling? This is the best party I ever had. I love you, Mommy dearest. I love you, Tina, darling. You lost again. It's not fair. You're bigger than I am. Ah, but nobody ever said life was fair, Tina. I will always beat you. And I'm not going to play with you anymore. Ever. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to march yourself upstairs to your room and we'll stay there. No, I won't. Yes, you will. to you in your whole career or given you one piece of bad advice your treatment of me has been divine good i want you to leave metro my wonderful fans leave metro your pictures one after another are losing money you've made me a star theater owners voted you box office poison making fun of me You're nothing but a rotten, crooked lawyer. The biggest female star he's got. Look at this floor. Do you think it's clean? Look at this floor. You and me together. Screw it up. Look at that. Nothing. What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you? No wire hangers ever. $300 dress on a wire hanger. We'll see how many you got in. We're going to see how many wire hangers you've got in your closet. Me what? Yes, mommy dearest. When I asked you to call me that, I wanted you to mean it. Joan Crawford, the most dramatic role of her life, was her life. Frank Yablons presents Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. 
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Joshua Grinnell. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. Also with us this week is Mr. Terry Frost. This is going to be a lot of fun. Hollywood, crazy women. This week we are looking at the 1981 film from director Frank Perry, Mommy Dearest. Based on the memoir by Christina Crawford, the film stars Faye Dunaway as actress Joan Crawford. We witness a few of her triumphs and many of her tribulations, including being fired from MGM after being labeled as box office poison. The film centers on the relationship she had with her eldest adopted daughter, Christine, often moving into oddly cartoonish and several awkward scenes. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Mommy Dearest, God help you. Just go out, watch the movie, and come on back. We will still be here. Terry, when was the first time that you saw Mommy Dearest, and what did you think? I think I saw it on TV in the 80s, and I thought, I was already a a big Hollywood buff, and I thought, this woman was totally insane. Uh, now I've got some childhood child abuse in my background, so it did trigger me a little bit. But because of the gender differences between my experience and their one, it, I thought, wow, this is just crazy. And the acting's over the top and the drama of it's so beyond what you normally see in a biopic that I loved it. How about you, Joshua? I saw it for the first time in college. I went to film school and I was a big, film fan you know from the time i was a kid and so if i had seen it before then i don't it wasn't as memorable but in college um i was lucky to have met an older gay professor who really recognized my interest in understanding things like anti-mame and all about eve mildred pierce whatever happened to baby jane and kind of fed that you know giving me movies and so seeing mommy dearest as part of this sort of uh, research, I guess, uh, it just blew my mind. You know, I couldn't believe it. And I guess I was um, horrified and appalled by it while simultaneously loving it. You know, I think it's one of the most delicious movies I've ever seen. I was probably about nine years old when this movie came out. Even at nine years old, I remember just the controversy that came out around this film the Siskel and Ebert, or probably at the time, it was probably at the movies, review of it. People just thought it was a horrible movie. They thought that the daughter was horrible for writing this memoir, trashing her mother. And I remember seeing it on cable, seeing this movie on cable. And to me, it was one of the most frightening films ever. I did not see, of course, at nine, ten years old when this thing showed on cable, it was probably a little bit older than that. But when I was a young teenager, did not see, I didn't understand camp. I didn't see the camp for this. And I just was terrified of this movie. (laughs) It took me a long time before I was able to kind of diffuse it. And actually, I think it was kind of uh, Carol Burnett might have helped out with that. I was doing some research today trying to find, because I really thought that there was a uh, Carol Burnett skit. I know that she did one called Mildred Fierce, where she kind of skewered Mildred Pierce, and she was kind of doing that, that Joan Crawford thing with the eyebrows and all this stuff. But I thought that there was a skit, maybe it was Saturday Night Live, but there was a skit where 
like basically the daughter uh, in whatever skit this was opens up her Christmas present and there's that damn raw steak still. Like it just keeps following her around. <laughs> Wasn't able to find whatever skit that was, but over the years, this movie has moved more into the humorous for me. Though it, it, it's such a complex film because you don't know how to take it sometimes because it could turn on a dime. It's nuts. You can take it as a comedy. You can take it as a horror movie, depending on which viewpoint character that you associate with. I had sort of um, been exposed to horror movies at such a young age and was so into, you know, the 80s slasher movies. And, and then as far as sort of underground cult movies, um, at an at a inappropriately young age, was exposed to things like Pink Flamingos and, <laughs> uh, you know, Female Trouble and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so I often think of something like Mommy Dearest as being um, maybe my really first taste of, of camp that's unintentionally um, achieving a result it never set out to do. You know, I think the filmmakers intended for it to be this sort of straightforward retelling of the, the horrible childhood of Christina Crawford. Um, and what, what it ended up becoming was this, this fantastically over the top camp comedy in a lot of ways. I mean, it, if you view it earnestly, yes, it is upsetting and horrifying, but it's very hard to take it seriously because it's so extreme. Um, so I just, yeah. you know, I always think of Mommy Dearest as like that, that specific kind of camp where it was not intentional. It was not intentionally made to be a comedy at all. Yeah, I definitely think that the best camp movies are the ones that aren't intended to be. You can deliberately try to make it and then kind of pull out all the stops there. But the ones that do it accidentally are always much more interesting and more kind of nuanced. You know, Mommy Dearest is one of those films where Faye Dunaway is unfairly, you know, kind of thrown under the bus or criticized. But I would argue that Faye Dunaway is really quite brilliant and chilling and fantastic and I mean, just chewing up the scenery in a, in a really, you know, great way. I mean, she's extremely talented, but the script and the direction of the film went, you know, one degree too far, you know, uh, to, to sort of take it seriously or not enjoy it as something extreme, much like showgirls and other movies where they're so extreme that, that in order to, you know, enjoy them, we can't take it seriously. It's impossible. Jasper, tell me a little bit more about your exposure to Joan Crawford. Was this the first time that you knew who Joan Crawford was, or had you experienced those other Joan Crawford films before this? You know, it was around the same time, which I think is very bizarre, <laughs> you know, as, you know, I, I went to college in the 90s, and so she, you know, most most young gay men my age had no interest, sadly, in, you know, Judy Garland and and Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. And I really did, you know, I was really obsessed with movies and Hollywood, but what is so funny to me about my exposure to Mildred Pierce and, you know, straight jacket, which is fabulous and wonderful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was given the whole Joan Crawford, you know, um, uh, library in a very short amount of time and kind of consumed it. And because mommy dearest was part of it, I often, still to this day, see a picture of Faye with the eyebrows and, and forget that it's not Joan, you know, 
So for me, I grew up with this sort of concept that Faye Dunaway in this performance, that this was Joan, you know, so it's a weird thing. It messes with my mind sometimes. Yeah, I came at it from a different angle because the first Joan Crawford movies I saw, I saw Trog, wow. <laughs> with her and the Neanderthal Man, and I saw her on that really good episode of Night Gallery that Steven Spielberg directed. So the Joan Crawford I came from was already kind of a grotesque. So Mommy Dearest really kind of plays into that a lot for me. And uh, the Joan Crawford that I associate with, which is very different from yours, Josh, is the kind of grotesque older Joan Crawford. And that made watching this movie a kind of different experience for me than it might have been for you. I think my only exposure for a long time to Joan Crawford was through this film. So I only knew of this caricature portrayal of Joan Crawford this way, but it wasn't until college and kind of like you, Josh, I went to college for me, it was early nineties and I was in a women in film class and they showed Mildred Pierce and I had never really heard of Mildred Pierce before, never experienced the film before, never experienced Joan Crawford in this way before. And then seeing that and I think Mildred Pierce really kind of speaks to Mommy Dearest in a lot of ways. Just the way that that Joan portrays, well, well, the, let's say the, the the way that the character is and Mommy Dearest seems like that's the way that the Faye Dunaway Joan. God, this is going to get crazy with the levels of of uh, <laughs> reality. It's almost like that's the way that she feels she is, where she is has given everything to in in Mildred Pierce to Vida, and the way that she it, uh, that Faye Dunaway portrays her in Mommy Dearest almost feels like she has given everything to Christine. So why is Christine being so mean to her? She's not nearly as gracious as the Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce. She's not Mildred Pierce, but she seems to feel like she's as put upon as Mildred Pierce, or at least that's the way that I kind of interpret that. I bet that part of that was on purpose. And I'm sure that, you know, Faye Dunaway, who was a great actress, you know, a lot of people, I mean, it's like Chinatown and Network, you know, a Mm. brilliant, brilliant actress. Uh, I'm sure she pulled you know, from those other performances, especially Mildred Pierce, the seminal, you know, Joan Crawford mother performance. Um, so I, I'm sure that that was intentional and I think it probably is for, for sure there. And yeah, I, I'm actually fascinated now by folks who are younger than we are, who, who actually mm-hmm. really truly believe, you know, I teach, um, college sometimes these film classes where you realize Oh, these kids think they know Joan Crawford and what they know is mommy dearest. And that's it. Right. That's all they know, you know, and now, and now I guess they'll know feud. Yeah, this is going to get so complicated because people are going to think that Jessica Lang's playing Faye Dunaway. The cross currents in that are going to end up crazy for a lot of people. Well, I was even trying to chart out. I mean, this, this is worse than inception because it's like, so there's the <laughs> real Joan Crawford. There's, Joan Crawford's image that she portrayed out there to the world. There's the Joan Crawford of Christina Crawford's memoir of Mommy Dearest, the book. 
And then there's the Joan Crawford that Faye Dunaway ended up playing in the film. And I'm sure that there are nuances even between there, because I didn't even mention that Mildred Pierce performance in there. So it just gets so muddied so fast in the way that, I mean, I've even caught myself calling Faye Dunaway Joan just in the first few minutes of our conversation. And it's just, yeah, you get mixed up. And then I think people mixed up. Like you were saying, Joshua, that that they mis- mixed up Faye Dunaway with Joan Crawford and think that they're seeing the real Joan Crawford just because she was so convincing in there. And there are times when I'm looking at this actress, and yeah, she has lost herself in this role, and it's got to be – it had to have been – kind of nuts for her to be portraying this other actress and with Faye Dunaway being a method actress I wouldn't be surprised if she went a little bit over the edge with some of this I mean I know people like tell stories like oh yeah Heath Ledger he went crazy when he played uh, the Joker and everything but I'm curious how deep she went into that role and you know because there are people who never break character if she was a full-on bitch all the time and we'll be talking to Ratanya uh all the later on to to talk about her her memoir of working on uh, mommy dearest and it sounds like faye dunaway was in full-on bitch mode the whole time that she was shooting mommy dearest now is that her is that her portraying joan not really sure, but it seems like those things really blend together. Yeah, I do know that um, when Faye was talking with Frankie Blanz about doing the movie, she turned up at dinner at his place totally done up as Joan Crawford to get the role. So I, I think she was very much invested in it. And that scene where she's cutting down the rose bushes and the um, orange tree, that's totally over the top. And you can hear the kind of gasping as she's doing it. And it's physically exhausting. And, uh, I mean, she committed to the role fantastically well. You know, as far as Faye Dunaway's reputation for being a bitch, it would be interesting to know how much of it existed before uh, Mommy Dearest and how much of it was either manufactured or is real post-Mommy Dearest. But, you know, there is this great viral clip of Betty Davis um, on The Tonight Show um, being asked which actress, you know, would she never want to work with again? And she says Faye Dunaway and talks about what a, a nightmare she is, you know. So who's one of the worst people that, that I worked with? Or that you wouldn't want to work with again? If you don't, you don't have to comment one, on that. One million dollars, Faye Dunaway. <laughs> Everybody you can put into this chair will tell you exactly the same thing. <laughs> what is it about Miss Dunaway that makes her... Well, she's just totally impossible. <laughs> Really? Yes. I don't think we have the time to go into all the reasons. She just, let's put it, she is just uncooperative. She's not good. Totally. Miss Dunaway is for Miss Dunaway. She's very unprofessional. I see. Difficult woman. Even there, you know, with feud being out and, you know, knowing that Betty Davis had this legendary feud with Joan Crawford, there's this sort of ironic, weird situation where Betty Davis actually names Faye Dunaway as the actress she hated the most and and was the biggest bitch and biggest pain in the ass. And so it's just layer upon layer. And and having worked in the business of celebrating Mommy Dearest uh, for cult audiences for many, many years, I can tell you that people have come out of the woodwork to share with me their personal stories with her and interactions, you know, at, at hotels and uh, servers, or I, I met someone once who was a, an assistant to her for a short period of time. And that reputation uh, of her being um, 
difficult, let's just say, if not mentally unhinged, it is pretty well established across the believe like anyone you know who's met her or dealt with her will kind of tell you and I'm talking about Faye Dunaway. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> I'm talking about Faye Dunaway. Because it gets so hear about Jessica right? Lang. Yeah. You know, I think Jessica Lang, I mean I wonder, yeah, if she ever paused to think <laughs> about, oh God, what's this gonna do to me? But because Jessica Lang has a great reputation, but Faye Dunaway, you know, I, I think the movie for her was obviously traumatic. She does not want to talk about it. She blames it for ruining her career. And, you know, who knows? I don't know how much of that's true. Um, but as far as, you know, did, did it really, you know, because she was working so much and the Mommy Dearest came out and she certainly has not worked nearly as much or as, as you know, she wasn't as big of a star as she had been. Um, but I also wonder, well, how much of it's just because you were such a pain to work with? Well, there's that, that plus the fact that she was kind of aging herself and Hollywood, uh, at least at that time, and of course up to this day, aren't kind to women once they blow out a certain number of birthday candles. It seems like she was really careful to not age herself too much. I know there are stories where actors are are in old age makeup, but Faye Dunaway wasn't in old age makeup. You know, just like, no, 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 I'll I'll continue to look young. Thank you. Like that story about Charlton Heston where he's playing King Lear on Broadway or something, and he made them put a bald paint over his toupee. <laughs> <laughs> I met him once at a, at a book signing, and it was the rattiest, most obvious wig I've ever seen. All the lacing was visible underneath it. Ooh. It was a monstrously bad rug. I kind of want to talk about the plot a little bit, but at the same time, I want to talk about what the movie is and then also what it wasn't. And why I want to talk about that and how I want to talk about that is a little bit as far as the script development, because there there are two versions. Um, well, there are many, many versions of the script that exist in the world, but there are two that are fairly readily available. One's the shooting script, and one is what uh, has been dubbed the, uh, the first draft. And uh, the first draft is by Tracy Hotchner, who uh, actually was an actress and um, I'm trying to remember wife of a producer, but she allegedly took the first stab at this thing and her script. It's, it's, it's really interesting because it's a lot of the same scenes that we see in mommy dearest, the final version of the film, a lot of it has been kind of rearranged, but then there's like a whole intro that isn't part of the film because in the film, I mean, it really focuses in on Joan having Christopher and Christina. Like we don't even really notice if there are other kids, we don't even really bother with them at all. It's mostly those two and really Christina. And she has Christina has as an adopts Christina within 15 minutes of the film beginning but in this first draft of the script it is actually more of a biopic of joan crawford and starts with her when she is still being called betty when she's just this you know young actress out of where is it abilene texas and really concentrates more on who joan crawford was and how fame kind of changed her from being this kind of whip behind the ears girl coming out to Hollywood to being this megastar and people who are our age or younger don't really realize what a huge star that she was. 
Christina doesn't even show up until about 60 pages in. That's like an hour into the film before the quote-unquote mommy dearest stuff really starts. It is almost all Joan you know, it's really like a biography of Joan Crawford for the first hour of the film. That seems like an attempt to kind of apologize for the her actions during the movie by kind of giving the background to them. I, I'm not sure it would have worked. A biopic of Joan Crawford, absolutely, it would be a good idea if somebody were to do it. But I think that that approach to something which is at its essence about child abuse really seems to be a misstep. But then it's it's interesting, too, because this first draft, they have those scenes, but they're a lot more calm. Like, they have Joan going into her, her rose garden, but they don't have her doing it in the middle of the night, what, what Christina would dub uh, night raids. It doesn't happen in the middle of the night, and there's no Tina, bring me the axe line, one of the best lines. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, beautiful, that line. I laughed that loud. All of the um, extreme nature of, of Mommy Dearest, you know, Tina bring me the axe, the stuff that we really, really like. I feel like in some ways, because uh, Christina, you know, was, I, I don't, you know, she was spanked, but you're not really sure that she was beaten per se. There was, a, you know, a clearly control issues and her mother, Joan, was obviously a control freak. But it almost feels like they had to amp up whatever they had from that book to, to make Joan appear to be a monster because, I mean, having a mother who was a clean freak and having a mother who really disciplined us, there was part of me that watched Mommy Dearest and was kind of like, hey, was I abused? You know, I don't think I was, actually. I think I just had a really strict, intense, you know, mother. And I feel like with the, the movie, they were kind of like, uh, okay, uh, we need to turn her into as big a monster as possible. So maybe that, that earlier script might have been a more honest portrayal. Hey, maybe, you know, this is going to backfire and Chris, Christina is going to look like a whiny ingrate. We just need to, you know, we need to push it as far as we can. Yeah, that's, that's a possibility. But uh, in historical context, this was the first kind of non-cleaned-up biography, really, of a Hollywood star uh, from a family member. Uh, I think, though, I think, uh, Bing Crosby's son Gary later on did a biography about his life with his father. But this was the first novel, or sorry, first book that really kicked apart that myth of Hollywood, apart from things like Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. It was really the first one from an insider just saying that things weren't what they were portrayed to be. Yeah, I think they might have gone over the top because of that, yeah. Right, because I forget now, like all these years later, we're so used to Hollywood being exposed all the time, right? It's no longer shocking, but you're right. At the time, especially someone like Joan Crawford, who was writing etiquette books and doing, you know, videos on how to have a dinner party and stuff like that, you know, um, you're right. Like it was probably super shocking when the book came out. Yeah, and so they played it over the top, yeah. Christina Crawford really kind of started a cottage industry of these tell-all memoirs or tell-all books, because I'm trying to remember when, like, those Kitty Kelly books would come out, because for a lot of years, like, when Kitty Kelly would have a new book out, it was just like, ooh, what's the scoop on this person, you know, and you would, ooh, the salacious details of what Frank Sinatra was really up to all those years, and whether it was 
10% fiction or 90% fiction or 100% fiction. It was just like, ooh, what what is really going on here? And yeah, it was like shortly after Christina had her book out, then we've got, um, well, even Betty Davis's kid put one out. And then, yeah, to your point, Bing Crosby put one out. And it just kicked off this whole thing of all of these people coming out with their memoirs and their dirty laundry of these things and i think christina crawford unfortunately really bore the brunt of people just not believing her and that's that's really kind of to me one of the saddest things about you know we're talking about all these layers of reality even if just parts of this stuff were true and i hate even couching things in that statement but if this stuff is true, I mean, it's terrible. Some of this stuff is absolutely horrible. Some of it, yes, might be just kind of conflation. And it's like, okay, yeah, my mom wasn't the best person to me sometimes, whatever. But the beating with the wire hangers, okay, yeah, that's that's a little extreme. And that's one of the things, too, that I think they kind of missed out on as the scripts were evolving was sometimes some of the ties between some of the scenes would kind of go by the wayside. It's interesting because there are so many of these building blocks in these early drafts of the script or in this early draft of the script, and then they rearrange them in the final version. And of course there's editing that's going on, even when it comes to the Polanski, Yablins and Perry draft. So there are times where you're just like, well, that would have made more sense had this scene followed this scene. Like seeing Joan Crawford being really vain, like in one one uh, scene that was cut, she's trying to strong arm a director who doesn't want to shoot these scenes of her being younger in the film. She's wearing old age makeup in a movie and she wants to have that those scenes of her looking younger so she can be the glamorous Joan Crawford. That scene then gets followed with Christina in front of the mirrors and her being glamorous and accepting the award and all this kind of stuff. And then Joan coming in and seeing how vain her daughter is and cutting off all of her hair. That combination of scenes would have been much more effective. And then follow that up with a scene that is in both of these scripts, which is Christina at school and her uh, principal calling in Joan and saying, Christina says that you cut her hair and she looks terrible. You know, she looks horrible with this haircut. And then Joan's like, no, she's lying to you. How dare you lie about this? Apologize to your principal. And then suddenly it becomes Christina's the liar rather than Joan being the liar. I mean, that, that trio of scenes would have been really powerful. Instead, we have just this kind of random, here's this shot of Christina in front of a mirror, and then her mom comes in and wails on her and cuts her hair off. And that's it. You know, we don't really get a follow-up to that, which is bizarre. It removes context, which is probably the weakness of it. Well, from my point of view, because I come from a background with similar kind of issues, uh, I think that my approach is to lean in toward believe in the abuse because there's some stuff in Mummy Dearest that's consistent with what I know of child abuse. And it's not the kind of stuff that you'd make up without having lived the experience. So I, th- I think that um, uh, you know, if there may, may have been embellishments. I don't know. But I think it is psychologically consistent across the board in, in the book and the movie, the experiences that uh, Christina had as a kid. But yeah, and, and the thing is that there's such a power that people have when they're celebrities that kind of says, I will be believed by millions of people if I say something that's not true to defend myself. 
And Joan Crawford, as much as anybody in Hollywood, was aware of that power and was aware of the fact that she can project an image which is contrary to the truth, and she will be believed because people are programmed and want to believe the good things about people and want to believe that she's a wonderful mother who celebrates Christmas with her children and has a wonderful life, whereas the background reality is that she was a deeply damaged human being. Obviously, the whole thing is told from the point of view of Christina because it's based on her story. But I actually, I would love to to see a biopic on Joan and, and not to excuse Joan's behavior, whatever it was. There's part of me that believes in her heart she was a good mom somehow and that in some ways this sort of tough attitude, you know, and one, one moment she says, you know, I don't want her growing up to be the spoiled, entitled daughter of Crawford or something like that. And I think in a lot of ways, like Joan, in her obsession with raising her children a particular way, it might have believed this was her showing them love. It, it, it's, a, it's a morbid concept, but I think Joan was so complicated and such a tough you know, girl to come out of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the environment she did and then to, to come to Hollywood at such a young age. And probably was shit on and used by men and probably had to do crappy things to stay relevant. And who knows, you know, yeah. so I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe I just this might sound really twisted. Part of me is comforted by the idea that it's not true because I want to love Joan Crawford. And I'm such yeah. a fan of Joan Crawford's that I hate to think of her as this monster. So it's easier for me to dismiss it as just this sort of campy exaggeration of a bitter daughter. But I, you're probably right. I bet there's there's some gray area here, obviously. We'll never know. It's the Michael Jackson phenomenon where, where um, allegations of abuse came up and people automatically dismissed them because they so liked the man and his music that it, it kind of um, went contrary to – there was a cognitive dissonance for them. I kind of feel like there was both. So I feel like with Michael Jackson, because he was so bizarre at that point, that people really enjoyed embracing those allegations as if they knew all along he had to have been this monster. And I, as as a drag performer and someone who is sort of living on the fringe of what society kind of thinks is okay, as far as gender expression and makeup and, you know, all of that, I always felt like, it was kind of ugly the way the public sort of latched on to this idea that he had done these horrible things. Um, so I don't know. It, it, yeah, I, I, but I agree with, you know, also there was there were people who didn't want to look at it and we're going to he was going to be the king of pop forever. So yeah. it's things right. Like we put these people people up on pedestals and then we love to tear them down, which we see all the time. Yeah, there's always the pitchforks and the torches, yeah. You mentioned Hollywood Babylon, and there was always that kind of like the the scandal sheets, the scandal rags, and and all of this idea of, you know, what's the real dirt about these celebrities? Because otherwise, they are gods amongst men, and, and these living gods who are walking around, these idols of the silver screen, and sometimes you want to hear those titillating things you want to see those those scandal sheet pictures you want to find out that bob mitchum smokes pot and what a horrible person that he is for that 
And then at other times, yeah, you just you want them to be those gods. You need them to be out there and to walk amongst us and for us to be those adoring fans. And that's the thing that I think so many people, when there was that backlash against Christina Crawford for the her memoir, was just so many people. I mean, like Faye Dunaway throughout Mommy Dearest, you always see her taking time for the fans, putting on that happy face for the fans, putting on the, the airs of the being the perfect person. So you, and you see her signing those pictures all the time throughout the film and just the way that she cares about stuff and to hear stories about how Joan Crawford kept up correspondence with her fans for so many years. I mean, Carol Ann, one of the things that uh, unfortunately isn't in the film, but was supposed to be was that Carol Ann was one of her fans and kind of comes in and Joan Crawford gives her a job. Like just one of her fans picks her out of, you know, like kind of like a Vita, like takes her out of the crowd and elevates her to this position and gives her this job. And they stay together for years and years. I mean, she's like, she should be probably fourth build though. I don't think she is, but she's right there with Joan throughout the entire, with Faye Dunaway through the entire film. And, you know, even when she's fading at the end, there's the Carol Ann character right there with Joan through thick and thin, through all of these night raids and craziness and all the drinking. And I think even if Joan Crawford wasn't, let's be uh, very politically incorrect and say crazy, though I think chemically imbalanced would probably be better, the drinking probably added so much to that and just made things so much worse than they probably ever could have been. And that brings up the other aspect of this film that I like a lot. I really like the supporting cast. People like Howard DeSilva playing Ruby May and Ratanya Allen playing Carol Ann. Even a, a stiff actor like Steve Forrest does okay playing Greg, her um, Joan's boyfriend at one stage. The supporting cast is pretty damn good in this. And how about young Christina? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, Mara Hobel, yeah. Oh, fabulous. And and there's a kind of you know, a stunned, kind of shocked and, and horrified aspect to that, that role, which surprised me. I, I think a lot of people have criticized the child acting by Mara Hobel in this, but I really like it. I think, I think it's valid, and I think it really is kind of, it has a lot of verisimilitude to it. I agree. And I think actually both Christina's are amazing, you know, and, and I think, again, I, I really actually think this is a good movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, I agree. I, yeah. I love this movie. It's a misunderstood movie, but it's, it's, it's a good movie. It's, it's not, you know, people say, Oh, it's a bad movie. People love to hate. It's like, I'm not me. I actually don't love to hate it. I love to love it. I like the fact that John, Diana Scarwood, suddenly gives Christina a slight southern accent out of nowhere. <laughs> um, I noticed that and I went, yeah, that, that's crazy. And obviously, Diana Scarlett has a southern accent, but it, it peeks through. And it took me out of the movie a little bit, but I liked it. I never thought about that. But I, now that you say that, I'm, 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 I'm hearing the lines in my head and I'm like, you're right. Yeah, where did she get that? I guess I thought at college or whatever. Uh, it's just another one of those aspects where the film's not quite right, but it, it kind of adds to the enjoyment of it. It's amazing to me that Diana Scarwood is second build, and she doesn't even show up until almost an hour, or if not, over an hour into the film. 
those scenes after she shows up, I mean, it's almost like a whole different movie. And it is amazing to watch that part of it. And I tend to think of more of the first half of the film. I tend to think of, well, because that's got the Tina get me the axe and it's got the no wire hangers ever scene in there, which are the scenes that people always talk about when it comes to this film. And then really it's only the, and I put only in, in air quotes, it's the choking scene that we get. And then the one that always just, oh man, my, my heart just drops whenever I see it. It's when Diana Scarwood's Christine, I'm trying to remember how it actually plays out in the movie. Is it appendicitis or is it a tumor? Ovarian cyst, I think it was. Okay, thank you. Yeah. She comes down with that and then Joan, who is... Uh, much older at this point takes over for Christine's role on a soap opera that she's on. And you have that awkwardness of the live acting. Now this is where I think Faye Dunaway really shines because she's got the, she's playing on a soap. She's got the live uh, acting uh, awkwardness. She's got the drinking going on and then the whole idea of her playing this character who's 20 years younger than she is playing in the movie i mean it's just so many levels again and faye dunaway just does it beautifully the other scene that really kind of typified it for me and was the one that i thought was really psychologically valid was young christina and joan having the swimming race in the swimming pool yeah, whereas you can see the competitiveness of, of Joan Crawford as a character and that kind of vindictive nastiness and that dominance that she was showing to her child. And uh, that harks back to another Frank Perry movie, The Swimmer. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that's another one of those scenes where they just nailed it. Ah, you lost again. It's not fair. You're bigger than I am. It's not fair to win twice. Ah, but nobody ever said that life was fair, Tina. I'm bigger and I'm faster. I will always beat you. But, but I think it kind of is the scene, I guess, that I'm, I'm while, while completely twisted, I, I think it's, it, it's an insight into Joan's weird idea of effective and good, tough parenting. You know, she, she yeah. says to Christina, I'm bigger and I'm stronger and I will always beat you, which, you know, I guess is a double entendre if we want to go there. But, you know, in a way, Joan probably believed that this sort of toughness, and I'm sure it has to do with a cycle of abuse, you know, whatever Joan's childhood was like, um, that, that in a sense, she was doing this little girl a favor by toughening her up for the world ahead. Had that been her father? I wonder if we would even still be talking about this movie. I mean, this is maybe this is like the great Santini type level when it comes Ooh. to this stuff. But I think that we have seen so many tough fathers who don't want to show that much affection to their children, who want to not coddle them, that want to you know give them the, the tough bringing up that they had. You know, this is, I mean, uh, what was the one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, A Boy's Life, right? Oh. I mean, we're, we're, we're edging in a little bit, but not nearly. I mean, it's. It, I think one of the things is that Joan, and I do mean Joan, is playing against type because she is a mother who is being as tough as a man. And there's that whole idea that runs through the film of 
Joan being mannish and her being as tough as any man. I mean, there are there's a moment where when uh, Louis B. Mayer is firing her, when um, she says, you know, I'm not getting the scripts. Give me a script that you wrote for Clark Gable and I will play that role. And it's just like, yes, she does have she's got the balls to be able to play a role that was written for Clark Gable because she can carry herself that way. And she when I love those scenes with uh, with Steve Forrest's Greg Sabat. She carries herself and she basically does like the Donald Trump thing and makes him walk five paces behind her. You know, she's the star. She's the one who is is in charge of everything. And if you're not there to support her, get the hell out of her way. The gender study that could be done on Mommy Dearest is is completely fascinating. And I think you're right. Had it been a movie about a father and a son, it would have been completely received differently that is a completely valid thing to bring up you know about this yeah. story yeah and also think that had it been a, a father and son the abuse would have been believed a lot more by the public and by a lot of other people because people are more ready to believe that a male parent is abusive than they are a female parent because the male parent is supposed to be that that hand of justice, whereas the the female parent is supposed to be the giver of love, the coddler, the one who gives you the hugs after the dad is the one that beats the shit out of you. So, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people were like, oh, there's no way. There's no way. And then that Joan had that public persona made it just a thousand times, if not a million times more difficult to believe. Whereas a man, maybe sometimes he can slip and go into that more primitive mode, into that like hitting mode. So we're going to forgive that kind of stuff. But a woman, there's no way that we would forgive her for those things. Now, come on, guard me. You got to win by two. I'm not going to guard you, Dad. Hey, 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 mama's boy. Mama's boy. I bet you're going to cry. Come on, mama's boy. Let's see you cry. Come on. Squirt if you. Come on, cry. Well, I can tell you something that I've experienced that that is just interest uh, of interest based on this discussion of the child abuse and and how uh, different audiences see the film and and or even the same person is able to see the film as different things over a period of time depending on how they view it in in San Francisco where you've got a very uh, sort of sophisticated movie going audience a lot of queer men and of course, allies who have, you know, a taste for camp and get wicked comedy, you know, will show up to a midnight movie screening of Mommy Dearest and completely understand the way in which we are going to present and celebrate this. If you're turned off by that sort of thing, you just don't come. You know, it's yeah. not for you. Um, however, I was once asked to program a week of movies um, in Switzerland where I did things like The Phantom of the Paradise and Faster Pussycat. And and really cult movies that I was sharing with a European audience. And that audience loved all this other stuff that I was doing, you know, Evil Dead. And I, I don't remember what all else. They totally got Phantom of the Paradise. But what they did not get at all was Mommy Dearest. In fact, it made me so uncomfortable because they just could not understand why in the world I would expose them to such a sad, horrible, you know, dep- you know, just traumatic film. And it was a real you know, wake-up call for me as a programmer that culturally they did not get the sort of um, – they, they did not experience it as the comedy 
ROM that, you know, I, w- I was intending it to be programmed as. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about the movie while I was watching it, and I thought, I would enjoy this movie even more if I had a couple of beers and I was like half half drunk and just rolling with it. Uh, I enjoyed the movie, and I enjoyed it because of the complexity of the abuse, plus the over-the-top camp and all of that kind of stuff. But I think with a crowd and with a couple of beers in me, I would have enjoyed it in the way that it was programmed by you, Josh. Let's say you come to a screening of mine in San Francisco, and you, you still don't um, have any knowledge of this film. Well, the audience is going to, like, figuratively hold your hand and show you how to enjoy this thing. But when going to an entirely new country where there was no cult audience for this thing, you know, um, mm. other than maybe a couple of, of other Americans who were sitting in the back laughing, um, people, you know, were really kind of looking at me like, God, you're really, you're really twisted, you know, like, wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very eye-opening, um, you know, experience for me, like, oh, right, like, in some ways, the response to this material has to do with, you know, how, how we're, we're positioned to receive it. There are Australian films that play differently to an American audience than to an Australian audience because we've got a culture of a thing called the affectionate insult, where mm. you call someone a bastard or a mongrel or something like that, and it's meant in a, a loving way. And there have been a lot of Australian films over the last 40 years which didn't play well overseas to various markets because there is that kind of culture, cultural knowledge that people weren't aware of. Yeah, as I'm watching it again recently, and I'm just howling at the wire hanger scene, and I'm just like, what kind of sick bastard am I that this is funny to me? But it is hysterical, and it just, there's that, and that's where I think that this movie is is so challenging, because it's it's hilarious on one level. It is that horror movie because we shouldn't be laughing at child abuse, but just it is so unhinged at points where you're just like, I think it's it's an uncomfortable laughter that morphs into something else that laughs and that morphs into genuine laughter because I can't watch that scene without laughing and just without enjoying seeing fade on away and that kind of kabuki style cold cream thing that she's doing with her hair all pulled back and just giving us everything that she can i mean she shattered her her vocal cords doing that scene and it comes through completely you just it's riveting and it's it's terrifying and it's so funny at the same time it is one of the most complicated mix of emotions that you can experience. in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever! Work and work till I'm half dead and I hear people saying she's getting old. And what do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her as she cares about me! What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! I buy you beautiful dresses and- 
shrieked and like it was some ditch rag. You two, three hundred dollar dress on a wire hanger. We'll see how many you've got in your hiddens up here. We'll see. We'll see. Get out of that business. All of this is coming out. 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 We're going to see how many wire hangers you've got in your closet. to take it as a serious drama you know my suggestion would be to have completely edited it differently to have asked Faye to perhaps pull back a little bit but also the punctuation to that whole scene it's it's hard to argue isn't comedic because it's a medium shot of the little girl saying Jesus Christ right it's <laughs> I mean how could you not find that funny it's comedy yeah, and, and that's how it works. I mean, imagine a scene in a movie where a man kicks his son, right? That's horrible. That's nasty and horrible. Yeah. But if the man kicks his son over a, a set of goalposts in the middle distance, that becomes comedy because it's the exaggeration that makes it comedy. And I think that the wire coat hanger scene has that kind of – it drifts into that exaggeration that makes it comedy. And the other thing that I didn't understand about that scene is, why would a nine-year-old child pick out the coat hangers for their clothes? <laughs> Thank you. I just, don't, I just don't understand that. And why would so? And that I'll say yes. The nine-year-old child went out and bought wire coat hangers to hang her clothing on. It's just an insane scene for that reason, and that justifies the comedy aspect because the scene, in a logical sense, makes no sense. I was probably thirty-five before I ever bought a hanger in my life. There you go. And you don't get that context, at least for me, coming in and, and seeing it the first time, the, the second time, the fifth time, the, the tenth time. I don't get that context that wire hangers are cheap. I mean, I grew up not in the most posh environment, so we had wire hangers, we had wood hangers, we had plastic hangers, you know. So when she flips the fuck out over wire hangers, it's just like what is going on here? Why is this such a big deal? And you don't like for me as a viewer, I didn't get any of that uh, you know, cultural context as far as those being cheap and wooden hangers being preferred and Joan wanting to have this lavish lifestyle in the way that wire hangers would be an affront to her sensibilities. It's just like, wow, that's a lot of stuff to pack into wire hangers. And I just was nowhere near that. It took me years before I could finally even figure out why she would snap like that. All right, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with the actress who played Carol Ann and the author of The Mommy Dearest Diaries, Ritanya Alda. And the second is with Justin Bozung, who is currently working on a book about the works of Frank Perry. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> 
will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com and you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How did you first meet Brian De Palma? I first met Brian De Palma for a movie he was casting called Greetings. And it was through a friend, a friend of mine, ran into a friend of mine. Uh, I was just really a young actress starting out. I'd only done a couple of things. 
Uh, and he said, oh, I just want to see this guy. He's looking for people that can improv, which I can do. I, I love improv. That's why I loved working with John Bellucci. Uh, so he said they're looking for people that can improv, and um, he gave me his phone number, so I called him up. Imagine calling a director up today. It's just, it's, that's one of the tragedies of movie making today. So I called him up and I said, I'd like to come. My friend said, I'm good at improv. I'd like to come and audition for you. And he said, fine, come. So we set an appointment the next day. I came in. So the, uh, the movie was basically, if you look at the script, which I have somewhere, it was just a paragraph, each page is a paragraph of an idea for an improv. And um, so we we improved it, and he said, "Oh, that's great! I loved it." And so he hired me. He said, "You're all good. You'll be good for this part." And uh, so we shot it. We shot it on thirty thousand dollars on on short ends, which is short ends are the leftover film thirty because it was shot in thirty five millimeter. It was leftover film that people couldn't use, like three minutes, five minutes of film. And so Brian would say, we've only got three minutes of film. you got to get this shot. <laughs> you only got five minutes. And we would get these, we would get these, uh, uh, these New York. It's a wonderful film, by the way. It's a really 60s film. Maybe not as professional looking with camera work, but I think it's one of the most authentic films of that era. And actually won the Silver Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival. And it was the first X-rated film, not because there was anything in it, but because he had a nude uh, bust of a woman. He had a really nude girl in there and because it had to do with uh, the Kennedy assassination. So he used this nude girl to mark out where Kennedy had been hit with the bullets. I thought it was very funny, but they gave us an X rating for that. So it was our greetings our was the first X-rated film. But and then I followed it up with Brian. Then he he did a follow up a year later with a sequel called Hi Mom. And then of course he just asked me to do this, so I didn't have to audition. But in those years, with the beauty of working in the seventies and even into the eighties, was that the directors were there and they would see you, they would meet you, they were there for the auditions. And it was terrific. You have actually interacted with them, and they could tell whether they could work with you or not. And now today, of course, the whole world has changed so much. Today, you, you, the director is never there, and the direct and it's you're just there with a, a casting assistant, and they're videotaping your little scene, and it gets sent off to who knows who sees it. So that's one of the things I feel we've really lost in this industry is our interaction with these directors because I have such, such fond memories of working with Brian De Palma. I, I just really, and then I worked with him a few years later on The Fury, of course, and, um, but, uh, you know, he, it's just those early years were such creative years where we were just really two films that were really improved. And he, Brian made him work, so it was great. Yeah, you worked with some of my favorite directors from the 70s, De Palma, Robert Altman, and you mentioned Paul Mazursky, Michael Cimino. I mean, there's just so many great people that you had uh, that you had an opportunity to work with at that time. Uh, Sam Peckinpah. Really, really, really wonderful, creative people that had their own visions and 
if you if they felt when they met you and auditioned you if they felt you were right they they said you know in those days a lot of like like um my you know and also worked for Elia Kazan early on well actually I worked on his last movie the last tycoon but see these people like Kazan never auditioned you Mazursky didn't ever audition me uh Brian of course we just did the improv but um uh Michael Cimino didn't uh, audition he just had a meeting they met you, and they got a sense of who you were. When I went in to meet Kazan, who was like a legend, when I went to high school, grade school, high school, I'd seen his movies, and when you went in to meet Kazan, it was just you and him. There was no casting director. There was no nobody else, and he made up his mind about you the moment you were walking in the door and he got a sense of who you were, a very intuitive man, talked to you for two or three, four or five minutes and decided right then and there, okay, you've got the job. And it, when I when that first happened to me, it floored me because I didn't have to go through the hoops. I didn't have to go through and wait, you know, for uh, whether I got cast or not. I knew right away. And, and even with Michael Cimino, who I loved working with, I adore Michael, that when I went into a meet for the deer hunter, I had like a 35, maybe 45 minute talk with him. We talked about a lot of different things or whatever. I forget now what we talked about, but it was sort of, he got a sense of who you were as a person and who you were. And he just, and he cast me. I I didn't have to go through a lot of I, did, I had zero audition. It just he he trusted his gut, and the cast he assembled in the Deer Hunter was just a fantastic cast. Nobody had to audition. Uh, what was it like working with John Cazale? John Cazale was absolutely wonderful. He was a sweetheart, and. I, I write about him in my book, of course, in the first chapter, I write about him. And my, uh, he was like a big brother to me. And he was just a goofy kind of funny guy. Uh, and when we did the funeral scene in uh, the uh, the movie, the, the last part of the movie, it was so hot in Cleveland. It was like 110 degrees, 120 degrees under the lights that we would just go and we were the only two because everybody else was afraid of getting pneumonia. We would go into this big walk-in refrigerator and sit on these cases of beer and, and rolling rock beer. This was the first time I heard of rolling rock. And, uh, and we would just sit there for a half an hour or 45 minutes until they got the cameras reset. And we would just talk and talk and talk. We talked about him, his cancer, and he had thought he beat his cancer, and he was into getting everybody on the set that was smoking to stop smoking. But he was also a lot of fun. He was just a fun guy. We did our laundry together. We had beer together. We went to the bars together. I mean, the local bars. It was just, he was just a really, just a sweet, sweet guy. It's been a while since I've seen Greetings and Hi, Mom. When you were in those, were you interacting with um, Robert De Niro or Gary yes, Graham? Yes, yes. Well, um, all my scenes were, my big scenes were with Bob De Niro in, uh, in Greetings. All my three or four scenes were with Bobby. 
Now, in Hi Mom, Bobby comes in. I, I do a scene called the Be Black Baby scene, which is <laughs> 25 minutes of film. And actually, got that's the scene that got written up by Richard Schickel, Life Magazine. All, everybody loved the Be Black Baby scene. It was almost like a movie of its own. Very advanced for its time. Really, really advanced. And um, so, and then in the middle of that scene, Bobby comes in. But there's several of us in that scene. So my my one on one my working together with him was in greetings where it was just the two of us do the scenes together. But in um in in the Be Black Baby scene there's like four or five of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is so tight when it comes to the improv. I mean, how many times did you guys have to rehearse that stuff before we, the camera? We cameras didn't rehearse call? it. We just did Oh you it. just went. We huh? just went wow. there there was no rehearsals. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. That's it. <laughs> so that talk about degree of trust that that yeah. uh that uh Brian had. He had he had that trust that we could do it. So we went for it. I'm curious when you worked with him again in The Fury, I mean it was only a few years later, but his career had gone through such a transformation between the those early films and then where he was at with The Fury. Yeah. It must have been such a different experience working with him. Well, yeah, it was on the Fox lot. It was a big production, you know, uh, major players, Kirk Douglas and all those people. So, um, yeah, it was just a different, it was a different experience. It was very, it was, it was very by the book kind of thing. So you did what was written and you didn't, there wasn't, there really wasn't any improv that I, that I was involved in anyway. So it was uh, all of a sudden you were from working the streets of New York doing improv to being on a set and he his see I I always thought because Brian in Greetings of a High Mom Greetings was a comedy High Mom was a was another comedy more of a dark comedy I always thought he had this this take on 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 things that were very funny um, and his own unusual humor was very funny. Um, and I thought Brian would go on to make these huge comedies, but his career took a turn where he went into the Hitch, Hitchhawk kind of films. Um, and I did, you know, I did work with him in, um, in that, again, I did the voices. I did Angie Dickinson's orgasm scene and uh, her death scene. And now, see, here is me. I can't remember the name of Dress to Kill, and then I did also the the answering service operator for Michael Caine when he she comes on the answering service. That's my voice. So I did I did work with him then, but then we took you know our, I would love to work with him again, but we he went a different direction. But even when he came in when I did to do the orga, Angie Dickinson's orgasm scene in the taxi, he said this is a hard one because it's almost two minutes and you got to do it without in one take. And the same thing with the scream in the elevator. He said I want like a sixty second scream, even though I might not use it. So it was like it was interesting because you know I did deliver, but um, it was interesting to work with him again later. But this, these were big, you know. All of a sudden, they were big movies, and he went into the 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 Hitchhawk kind of stuff that he sort of seemed to um, be attracted to then, and he made these kind of thrillers, wonderful thrillers. 
but it, it was a different turn than I thought he would take. So you <laughs> never know, you know, it's a, it's interesting. Yeah, I know he had a really bad experience on that uh, Get to Know Your Rabbit film, which might have soured him on the comedy for a bit. Oh, this Mother's Brothers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he lost... It was See, he went from working with, with us on the two comedies to working with two stars on comedy that probably didn't have the kind of... It, it was probably, I'm guessing, so I don't know. I'm guessing the Smothers Brothers were really, really big stars at the time. And I'm sure they had whatever they did down pat. So it wasn't a flexible kind of atmosphere that he did with us. So I have a feeling that it just wasn't, it, you know, you, you're right. You're absolutely right. It could have just soured him on it. With Mommy Dares, I know now there is one reaction to Mommy Dares. I know you just sent me that uh, flyer the other day about celebrating Mommy Dares, and it has gone so deep into the camp camp. Um, but when it first came out, what was the reaction like to the film? They didn't know. They thought they had one kind of a film about a big movie star and in the first week, see, it's interesting because there was no premiere on this movie. So, which is really interesting because usually a movie of this size would have a premiere. There was no premiere, so I went, I paid to see it. I went down to Lowe's on Broadway and I paid to see it. Yeah. And I saw it maybe five days into the run. And when I saw it, people were already laughing and people already knew some of the lines. So I figured these were people were seeing it a second or third time. And so I was as, as stunned as anybody else because it was not the movie they intended to make. They did not intend to make the big camp movie, which has become the biggest cult classic of our time. They had no idea what they had. And, and Paramount was struggling to find advertisement, advertising for it. The advertising kept changing. Uh, and and Frank Yablons, the producer, kept getting upset with the way they were going because he didn't he, – he, nobody had any idea that this was, this was the movie it was going to become. It just took a turn of its own. It became this cult classic and very campy. And we're doing, yeah, we're actually doing our own campy version of it this Mother's Day down in the Metropolitan Room in New York. So if anybody's in New York that wants to come, it's at 9.15. So we said after you have your, your obligatory lunch or dinner with your mom, do something to yourself and come and have an hour's worth of camp with us. And, um, and we're doing it too because it it's just turned into um and this this phenomenal thing. And then Heather Lettuce, who's an amazing comedian, she does it every year. In fact, I think she's going to do it in October or later on. I think for the Gay Pride, maybe later this year for the Gay Pride weekend, Gay Pride weekend. Uh, and I'll join her there, which, I mean, I'm I'm just her guest. I'll probably have a book signing there too. Um, but there's nobody funnier than Hedda when she does these 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 things, and uh, and it, it's just taken. It's become this this camp classic, this cult classic. And but one of the interesting things, Mike, I think is that it has reinvigorated Joan Crawford's career. All of a sudden, there's a whole generation of people who, without this movie, would have not known who Joan Crawford is. 
And now they become these huge fans of the old Joan Crawford films, which is such an interesting thing for me because who would have known, of course, Joan Crawford would be thrilled to know that all of a sudden, all these years later, she's a big movie star again. So, you know, it's like life is so funny. It's so strange. But no, I, I they, did, they had no idea. I, I don't think any of us had an idea. Nobody had an idea that this was going to become this campy film. Everybody sees the premieres of things, and you think that's all it is, is glamour and, and premiering it. That's the very end of it. That's like, that's like the very end, because most of it is uh, a lot of long hours and a lot of waiting around and a lot of individual preparation and dealing with all the stuff on the set, like on our set on Mommy Dearest things were kind of chaotic right from the beginning and uh and it continued through the whole almost four months of shooting so it it was just interesting to have people's responses on how they perceived how they got a different idea what it was like to be on a movie and they felt that they had taken that journey with me so i'm i was very pleased by 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 the reactions and the positive comments and and the interest so i was very happy to have that response yeah i was very surprised at just how many times you were waiting to see if you even were going to go in the next yeah. day or you would go in and they would tell you, no, you're not needed today or all of those times where, yeah, your close-ups, your shots even weren't until the end of the day when most people, you know, are, are waiting to leave. And so many of your fellow actors, especially Miss Dunaway have already taken off. They've taken off. I say never stayed ever once for my close-ups. Uh, and that was kind of amazing to me even because, uh, you know, I've worked with other people and other stars, and everybody usually—I mean, I'm not saying it's 100%—but usually stayed for the for the close-ups because you want the scene to be really a good scene. And so, also, it's it's in consideration to your fellow colleagues, your actors. You want to be helpful and supportive of them. And you'd like them to be the same way with you, and it never happened with it never happened with Faye Dunaway that she ever did that. So he was just that's just the way it was. So I, I once I realized, well, I was still hoping at the end <laughs> somehow one day she would stay, but once I realized halfway through it's not going to happen. You know, you kind of deal with it the best way you can, and usually I read with the script person. But if the script person wasn't available, Frank Perry would read with me. I mean, the script person was always available, of course, because they were there. But sometimes Frank Perry would take that that job, and he would read Faye Dunaway's part. He would read Joan Crawford. So, I mean, it, it, you just everybody did the best they, they could under the circumstances. I'm, I must say... Everybody really kind of was wonderful in their own way, and they, they, there was a, so much uh, resentment toward Miss Dunaway toward the end or the halfway through. It was just so. Any time that she wasn't on the set, people were really happier. So in a way, in a strange way, they were glad to see her go <laughs> when she left early. They were happy she left, you know, because it took a certain stress level off the set. 
Uh, and so people were, were, were really kind of not, not, not unhappy about it. Um, so it was just, it was an unusual kind of experience because I had never worked in a movie where there was that much stress and resentment toward a star. Usually people pretty much like the star and, and you know, you wanted to be around them. It was nice, but in this case, it was, it was just a different experience. But in a way, it was, it was a good experience looking at it in the long run. If I had not had this experience, I would not have kept a journal. So there would be no book. There would be no Mommy Dearest Diary. If I, if it had been perfect and everybody would have been wonderful. And the reason I started keeping the diary was because it was so stressful right from the beginning. And, and then my, my, my relationship with my husband was very stressful at the time because of his, his uh, problems with his drug addiction that I, I combined both of those things together. It was, so the only thing that really got me through this filming was to keep my journal because when I kept my journal, it kind of balanced it. I don't know, something about writing out things that happen uh, in your life that kind of gives you a little different balancing perspective. So in a way, I did, never kept a diary before, and I have not kept a diary since. But the lesson I learned from it was sometimes in my own life now, if I want to get a little different perspective on things, a maybe clearer perspective, and take some of the angst off of my life, I write things out, and then I reread them, and kind of gives me a different perspective. So I do encourage anybody to do that, even if it's short-term, even if it's a very short-term, you're going through your job or a friend or something, to kind of journal it and for a little while. And I, I, I think, it, I don't know what happens, but something happens in the journaling of it that it gives you a certain sense of calm and I think a more balanced perspective of what's going on in your life. And I have journaled since then, but not a, not a, not for a long time, just maybe for a few days or a week or something, if something's going on, it's just a personal perspective on, on things. So that was kind of interesting. When it comes to Mommy Dearest, as far as, because I remember when the book came out, it was kind of a scandal, you know, this yeah. whole idea of, you know, because we didn't have the whole uh this was one of the first times that we ever had a child write a memoir about a parent and who was such a beloved Hollywood figure. So was there any kind of fear of backlash when it came to making the movie of it? Yes, there was actually there was because it was the first tell all of, uh, on a big movie star. The uh, people that had worked on that came out of retirement, to work on the film, uh, like Charlie Schramm, who was my makeup artist, and Vivian Walker, who was the main makeup artist, both of these people, by the way, were supposed to do Faye Dunaway because both of them had worked with Joan Crawford for on many films and were personal friends of Joan Crawford. So was Irene Sheriff, by the way, the costume designer. And they were all people that... Uh, right away, Faye replaced them with her own makeup person and her own hairdresser, which 
which she didn't didn't understand the forties. The hairdresser didn't understand the forties, and uh, and so right from the giddy up, that set up a certain resentment, a thing that they'd come out of, of retirement to work with Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford, and and it didn't happen. But they were very in talking with them, which was very interesting. They all loved Joan Crawford. They absolutely adored her because she had a terrific work ethic. She was on time. She knew everybody's name, every single grip, every electrician, everybody that worked there. When on her first day of work, she knew everybody's name. She was gracious and wonderful to people. She brought them at the end of the production. She gifted them with gifts. She thanked them. She took everybody's birthday down. So every year people would get birthday cards and sometimes a personal phone call from her as well. So she had this uh, great sense of professionalism of what it took to be a star. is not just about you. It was about all the people on the set that helped her and worked with her. That's one of the reasons she was so loved in the industry. And I learned from Charlie Schramm and Vivian Walker that they absolutely adored her. So they were had mixed feelings about working on this film because they were still very loyal to her. And and so there, she created a lot of goodwill with the people she worked with. I mean, probably not with Betty Davis so much, but Betty Davis still said at the end that Joan Crawford was a total professional. So, I mean, I'm sure that there were some people that, you know, but on the whole, she had a lot of goodwill in Hollywood. So what happened when this when this book came out, a lot of people, because of their professional experience with her, rushed to her side, even though she was dead, and said, you know, this is this is wrong. You know, she was a wonderful woman to work with and this and that. So this was, Christina Crawford created the first tell-all book. So when we, when we started filming, there was still a feeling that people were had mixed feelings. And I think that's one of the reasons why, see, I think the set designer who was brilliant and the costume designer, Miss Sheriff, should have been nominated for an Academy Award, even if they, to win or not, because they, the sets were so fantastic and the costumes were so fantastic. But I, they, we got zero nominations because because I think the industry really still didn't want to accept this this idea of Joan Crawford ever abusing her daughter. Yeah, I can't even imagine what Christina Crawford must have been going through to experience that all, uh, to, to have the bravery to put that out there and then to experience that backlash. She got a lot of backlash and a lot of hate mail, and I think it just kind of tells you who she is. She's a very strong woman who really withstood all of this, uh, all of this uh, stuff that came at her. And, you know, later on, like you look at it now in terms of today, it probably wouldn't have been as sensational today as it was then. And a lot of other people afterwards wrote about it. Betty Davis's daughter wrote, the Crosby kids wrote about Bing Crosby. So, I mean, she sort of opened the door for these tell-all um, books, and, but hers is the first, and I think hers got the most backlash. 
I also felt pretty bad for you reading the diary and just reading how many times that you were working on these scenes and putting forth your all and then to have you note in parentheses to show that you had written it later on that these scenes had been cut. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons is that they shot, I think, an extra hour film. I think there was an extra hour that was shot that, you know, they had to sort of, I guess, edit what out, what they, whatever it was they thought would make the story. But there were a couple of really, really good scenes that, uh, that were really terrific that um, I'm sorry were cut. And, um, you know, it just, the thing about movies is, and I always hold my breath <laughs> when I make, you, you do a movie, you go like, oops, am I going to be in it or am I not going to be in it? Because it, you just don't know. And sometimes, it, and most of the time, it has nothing to do with your performance. There is only one director ever ever that called me and let me know I wasn't going to be in the movie because a lot of times you go and you really hold your breath. Am I in? Am I out? Do I? Am I? And, but Paul Mazursky, I did a movie. I did two movies with him. Actually, I did uh, next stop Greenwich village and I had a wonderful scene with John Bellucci and he was just, he, he was just funny and wonderful and terrific. And, and Paul called me and said, a wonderful scene, so funny, but I'm not going to use it in the movie because it takes away from the storyline and it goes, it focuses on you guys, you and John, and it takes away from the storyline. <clears throat> Excuse me, so I'm not going to use it. And he was the only director ever, ever to call a, an actor and say that in my whole experience because nobody ever calls you. You don't know. <laughs> and you hold your breath along with everybody, especially if you're seeing it in a, in a theater and paying to see it. You, you're thinking. And one of the things is that, uh, see, I think Paul, because Paul was an actor, Paul Mazursky was an actor in his earlier years, and he, he felt that the actors needed to know that. When did you first start to get involved in this kind of unintentional life of Mommy Dearest? Well, actually, just three years ago, um, I actually did, had no idea that this was going on because I, I had my son uh, in, the, in the late 80s. He was born, and then I was busy with him. And, and so it wasn't until, well, maybe it was five years ago. Five years ago, Hannah Lettuce was doing a, an, uh, an evening at the Ziegfeld Theater, which is unfortunately now is closed. It's a big, huge, wonderful theater in New York. It, was in New York. it is in New York City, but it's closed now this year but she did a whole thing and she sold out the theater with like 1800 seats and she asked me to be her guest and I thought wow you know this is interesting no and I didn't realize when I went theater the whole theater was sold out and this whole happening was was like a happening and then I thought okay that's when I first became aware of it. It was about five years ago. And then then afterwards, a year later, Mark Hustis from the Castro Theater in, in San Francisco called me and said, would I come in for a Mother's Day event at the Castro Theater? And again, it sold out, I think about 1,400 seats, I forget, something like that. And people were really, that's when I did my, uh, Mark put it on YouTube, uh, Ritania Alda at the Castro Theater. 
I read, this is when I first, because I said to Mark, well, I kept a diary. Do you want me to maybe read from some of my diary? And he had no idea I had a diary. I hadn't told anybody. I mean, my diary was put away. I had no intention of ever making a book out of it. He said, absolutely. So all these wonderful men there all went crazy when I read from the diary. Everybody wanted more. So that's when I had an aha moment thinking, well, maybe there's a market. I'll make this into a book. So that's when I started putting it together. I wrote uh, the first chapter was really about how I came to be my life as an immigrant, as a refugee, really, in this country. My early years, my years of coming to New York, my working with all these wonderful directors and my experience with them and sleeping with some of them. Uh, and and uh, that's my first chapter, my dear. So you get an idea, including the wonderful Sam Peckinpah, who I loved and adored. And he is he continues to be a character in the second half, the second chapter, which is the Mommy Dearest Diary, and actually Sam comes into the diary um, because during the shooting of Mommy Dearest, I go see him uh, and spend some time with him. And then, uh, then the third part is the after part, sort of giving information on some of the stuff that happens afterwards. But that's when I, at the Castro Theaters, when I first got an idea, because people wanted buy the diary then and there. So I just had these I just had these pages that I read. So then almost all of last year I spent um, you know, putting it together and then it came out uh the end of last year. And um so then it's very been very successful on Amazon dot com. I've gotten a ninety eight percent five star favorable reviews and uh so I'm having really good reviews and people are really enjoying it. So um, that's sort of when it happened. It's really been recent. It hasn't, you know, it's been a recent thing. When people uh, come up to you on the street, they recognize you for some of your roles. What do they generally recognize you for? Most people don't recognize me. <laughs> they don't recognize me. And I'll say, well, I was Carol Ann in, in, in uh, Mommy Dearest. And they go, oh, oh, my gosh. Yes, oh, my gosh. I wouldn't have recognized you. It's like... They don't really recognize, you know, more people in New York City actually recognize me in the subway from the Law and Order stuff I've done. Uh, I saw you on Law and Order. You were Rose with a stone baby. Oh, my God, I loved you. That was, but most, there was one, one, one young man just recently, I was with my friend Leon Jusen, who did the cover for my my book, and he's a wonderful animator, famous in his own right. We were there taking the subway home. This young man must have been no older than 30. He said, oh, my God, you were Tanya Alden in Mommy Dearest. And I said, and we were, I was, like, shocked. I said, oh, my God, you know. He said, oh, my God, I was just talking about you. We were just talking about the movie and this and that. But that's kind of rare. <laughs> like, most people don't, most people don't associate me with it. Until I tell them, you know, and they think so. <laughs> well, go, it, go, yeah. it's definitely a credit to your hair and makeup people that you do not look like your character. You do not look like Carol Ann. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. 
Right. I mean, because seeing seeing the picture on the back of the book, seeing other pictures of you, you know, knowing you from your other roles, I was just like, really, that person, you know, that that young lady from uh, the Long Goodbye, that's Carol Ann <laughs> from Mommy Dearest. There's no way. Yeah, it's great to be a character actor because you can change your look and you can change, and and you fit into all these different parts and and uh, and. <laughs> It's it's fun. It's fun. I, I love being a character actress. But thank you very much. You know, when I when I let slip on Facebook that I was going to be talking to you, I had a lot of people that were saying, please ask her about rapping, because I want to know what it was like to work on rapping. Oh, oh, it was great to work on rapping, actually. I actually got to rap. I have a little, it was longer in the movie, but they cut me down, right? So I rap a little bit at the end. It was, um, we were shot in Pittsburgh, in a very poor area of Pittsburgh. So we we were supposed to be very, you know, the poor, really poor, poor neighborhood. And uh, so we kind of, our location was in this very dilapidated house in this very poor neighborhood. And it was easy to get into the feel of what it was like. And Mario Van Peebles was very, he actually uh, was really good about, he did a couple of rapping songs. He's actually really good. So it was just, it was a fun experience. Everybody on that movie was just terrific. And there was a, uh, an older black lady who I became friends with, Birdie. She uh, became friends with her to the end of her life from that movie and um, we were all very close. We were all very friendly with each other. It was just, I just have a really warm feeling about that film. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I uh, after um, somebody posted a clip on my, on my Facebook page, I was like, I have to see this. So I tracked it down. I was like, yeah, this lives up to the hype, definitely. Oh, my gosh. I haven't seen that movie in so many years. It's like, oh, <laughs> But I, I, I love the people I worked with. I, I, everybody's wonderful. The kids were wonderful. The other actors were terrific. And we would sit in this cold house on pillows. And we, we, you know, when you're in that kind of environment, you get cl- really close really fast. And, but everybody was just terrific. I, I really, I, I just enjoyed the cast. And that that I think that that makes a big difference, especially in when we were working on circumstances. It was cold. There was no heat. But when people pull together and they really support each other, it's it's just it's fun. It's not you know if they don't, we could have all been really miserable and and unhappy. But because we were all there to support each other, we we remembered. I ran into a, uh, one of the actors there recently on the street. He was going by in a bus. We're talking. Back of the bus, but I remember him so warmly. It's like sometimes one of the sad things about movies is that you get close to people and then you don't see them again. It's like it's it's like you just keep leaving home over and over and over again. And I remember when the deer hunt ended, and they all went off to to Thailand, the guys and. 
and I went back to New York. I remember the, and I, when everybody said goodbye at the, in the lobby, that George Sinza and Johnny and and everybody. I felt so sad. I felt really, really sad. I felt like I was losing my family. And one of the things about being in film that is, that is kind of sad is that a lot of times you work with these people and you don't see them again for years and years. But then when you see them again, because you had this bonding experience. You, you you feel like there's really been very little time that's gone by. Even that my actor friend from rapping, we're talking, we're talking, and I, I had such warm feelings toward him. I wish he would have gotten off the bus and we could have had a cup of coffee, but maybe he was in a hurry. But uh, that's the sad thing about being in movies because people think a lot of times you work with these people and you pal around with them. It's very rare. It's really rare that you do because they go on to other projects. You go on to other projects or not, but you don't really run into them except by accident sometimes or at events or functions. Sometimes at functions I run into them. Yeah, it seems like a lot of those relationships can get really intense really fast, whether it be friendship or love or dislike or hatred even. It just feels like they're just kind of microcosms because you come together and it's just almost an explosion. Exactly. That's what it is. That's exactly right. So I know that you are very busy these days with the book and doing events related to it and everything. Are you doing any uh, acting these days? Well, I I had a... I had an offer to do a television thing, but I was when I was in Sarasota at the film festival doing that. So it's one of those things sometimes when it where it. So I'm sure I'll get it again. Uh, it's for a, a series thing, so I'm sure they'll call me again. But what I'm doing now is I did a play recently. I'm doing this this thing which we're rehearsing because we're doing about six or seven skits for the Metropolitan Room, and then my friend who is. Uh, Bill Zeffiro, he he has composed a musical on based on Mommy Dearest called Mommy Dedda. So he's going to do some of the songs from there. We're going to do them together. So we've been busy rehearsing for that, for the May 8th thing. Now my next project is, although, uh, you know, if I have an audition, I'll go up for that. Uh, and my next project is a friend of mine who has, his wife has written a new play and we just had a reading of it um, at a theater the other day, and he wants to do it sometime in the fall. But what I want to do is I have my one-woman show that's halfway written, and my objective is to finish. It's going to take me another six months to finish it, and I want to finish it before the end of the year and do it somewhere next year. And, of course, if I get any paying jobs like TV or film, I will have to interrupt that because I, I want it also to, you know, be say current in film or television. But um, so I have the two plays going for me, and and see I'll see what happens with the film. I'll see what happens with some film or two. Oh, I I am doing. I'm flying into L.A. next month to do the final season for Old Dogs and New Tricks, uh, which my friend Leon Accord Whiting. Uh, is the star and producer of. So we're, I'm doing the final season for that. So I'm shooting next month in uh, in Los Angeles for that. So yeah, it'll be it's fun. It's a fun thing. And so um, and I might I work with Bruce Hart. He's a wonderful actor, and he and I are the bad guys in the series. <laughs> and 
we're the we're the two uh, antagonists, but it's so much fun playing a bad person. Sometimes it's like you can be you can be nasty and stuff like that, and always apologize to the actors afterwards. I didn't, but they know, you know. We're Bruce and I are the two the two baddies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know you're over on Facebook. Do you have any uh, website or, or Twitter where you'd like people to follow you at? Well, I'm on Facebook. My book is on Amazon.com and also BarnesandNoble.com. But all my great reviews are on Amazon.com. I don't think anybody's reviewed me on BarnesandNoble.com. So if anybody buys on BarnesandNoble.com, give me a review. But um, I do have on my – I've got to get – I've my friend has finished my web page, but I haven't got put it up yet, so it's something I have to do. Uh, but basically, it's it's the Facebook. is I'm pretty active on Facebook. I keep people pretty current on stuff on Facebook. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful talking with you. You're great. You're a wonderful conversationalist, and I love your questions. I really appreciate your time, too. So what got you interested in the films of Frank Perry? The whole interest came about uh, a few years back when I was writing for Shock Cinema, and I had approached Stephen there about doing an interview with Bruce Davison. You know, up until that point, the, kind of the only Frank Perry film I had seen was Last Summer. I certainly was familiar with him. I had heard of him and, um, you know, knew about him and his wife, Eleanor. But really, I'd only sort of consumed last summer, and I fell in love with it instantly. In fact, it was kind of around, I mean, you and I were still working together at that point, I think. Got in touch with Bruce. We had a great rapport. We did a great interview. And at that point, it just really got me thinking. I started, because I was doing all this research in preparation to talk to Bruce, and I just saw that there was clearly a gap. There was, there had been nothing really serious that had been written about Frank to date, nor Eleanor. Of course, there had been a couple books really only on the market that had, had come out prior. Um, you know, there was, in the late 60s, there was a book that Frank and Eleanor did with Truman Capote about their uh, trilogy film, the 1967 and 68 TV specials they did um, based on the Capote stories. And then, of course, there was Eleanor's uh, sort of quasi-memoir called The Blue Pages, which was published in 1979, which is sort of a fictional account of their relationship and juxtaposed with uh, her time working on The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing with Burt Reynolds. And this was a book that completely, you know, if she had any chance of working in Hollywood uh, at that point, it was pretty much done and over with because this book really killed her career. You know, I really noticed there had been nothing written written about Frank to date. And so I thought, you know, as I went through and did the interview with Bruce and then decided to really get invested into the Perry's films and, of course, Frank's later stuff as well, I just I saw that there was a tremendous need for work on what I thought was an extremely underappreciated director. And I saw that there was a gap there and I decided I wanted to fill it. And from there, it was me doing a few interviews and then getting involved and getting in touch uh, with Frank's family and his estate and getting them on board. And from there, it was it was 
smooth sailing at that point. Got me into the archives, and um, I spent a week in Frank's archives going through all his personal papers and film production documents and scripts and all that stuff, and it led into the book. Now, the book that you're writing, is it focusing mostly on the films, or is there a biographical angle as well? Yeah, so there's a biographical angle, but there's also it's also a, a look at the films. Uh, you know, originally my plan had been you know, I first sort of conceived of the project was to create a sort of, sort of like an X in the sense that I wanted to do half the book about Frank, half the book about Eleanor. And it was going to focus just on, you know, the, the films of their collaboration. And, you know, while I had Frank's family on board and his estate on board, I did not have Eleanor's uh, stay on board. In fact, they were very resistant to the idea at first. In fact, they even went so far as to call Eleanor a minor figure. And so that was really disheartening to me at that point. And it was at that point that I kind of decided I needed to move full scale and just focus on Frank. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't really want Eleanor to be sort of a footnote because I thought, you know, because in essence, there would be no Frank Perry. There would, there would be no films of Frank Perry without Eleanor Perry and vice versa. You know, they really their collaboration was was something that made both of their careers and so it was important to me that she not be a footnote. Um, so as a, you know, more or less a couple of years went by, you know, I was focusing solely on moving on Frank and then a sort of a last, last ditch effort. I just fired off an email to, to Eleanor's family and said, this is where I'm at. This is who I've talked to. This is what I have access to. And I would really love for you to reconsider because it's important to me to get the story right. And I don't want her to be a footnote. And it was at that point that we started a long dialogue and he and the family of Eleanor got on board. Um, and so at this point still, you know, it's not the book I originally envisioned, but it's Eleanor's just as much involved in the story now as as um, I would have liked her have been originally. Looking at his filmography, it seems so wide and wild that it just doesn't feel to me at least at first blush, that there's much of cohesion other than him working on all of these films. As you've gone through and looked at all of his movies, have you kind of found some themes that he would return to time and again? Every single one of his films, more or less, is about a disconnection between people and people reaching out to one another. There's a, the human triangle aspect, too, of there's all, often you know, three or more characters intersecting within each other, and they're all trying to communicate with each other. So there's that. And then, you know, there's a return to sort of um, metaphysical ideas. You know, for example, played as it lays is a, for me is a very existential metaphysical film elements of even Beckett in it. And you kind of see that popping up earlier in his career through when you examine some of the projects that, you know, that didn't get off the ground. Like, you know, in, in the wake of David and Lisa, David and Lisa came out in 1962. It was the first, American made independent picture that was nominated for an Academy Award and Frank and Eleanor both received Academy Award nominations for the work as well. And, um, you know, on the cusp of that, you know, you had other independent films, certainly you had, you know, B movies and, you know, Russ Meyer making movies in the very early sixties. You had Cassavetes, all that stuff. But Frank and Eleanor's was the first independent film to draw mainstream attention and sort of opened up the American landscape for that. And so in the wake of that, then you had, of course, what naturally does one make in the follow-up of a film like David and Lisa, but, oh, I know, I want to bring Albert, Albert Camus' The Fall to the big screen. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's, it's an impossibility. No studio is going to touch what is essentially a French existential novel. You see a lot of things 
in history where like ideas popped up earlier that he just couldn't get off the ground, but essentially they come back later on. So like, you know, with the fall, for example, which is told almost more or less as kind of like a theater piece, almost it's one person talking to sort of an invisible person, reaccounting, recounting their entire, not their life, but sort of incidents in their life that got them to where they are. And you very much see him returning to that in one way or another in his 1984 film. Um, that's sort of, that's kind of lost, but recently been discovered JFK, a one man show, which is essentially uh, Mike Farrell from MASH as John F. Kennedy sort of literally doing a 90-minute monologue to the camera doing exactly what the character in Camus' fall did. So you see him recapitulating ideas earlier in his career that always resurfaced later on in his his filmography. So where do you see Mommy Dearest fitting into his filmography? It's uh, sort of a transitional period for him in the sense that, you know, when after the divorce with Eleanor, him and Frank and Eleanor got divorced in 1971. You know, stayed in touch, had thought about collaborating after the divorce, never really worked out. But in the wake of that, you know, you had films like um, Doc and um, Played as It Lays and Man on a Swing. And, you know, right around Man on a Swing, um, you know, Frank at this point is remarried to his second wife, Barbara, and um, always sort of known as a man with voracious appetite and loved to eat and cook and he loved to smoke and, and drink. And around the time the man on the swing is made, Frank, who is more or less 60, 70 pounds overweight, he has a heart, a second heart attack. His first heart attack came in the summer of 66 during the shooting of the swimmer. And um, he has a second heart attack. Um, You know, Barbara forces him onto a diet. (laughs) In fact, he was so, passionate about the diet that in the wake of losing 60 pounds, he wrote a huge sort of editorial piece for the New York Times telling him, telling the world how he'd lost the weight and how everyone should lose weight and be happy. And um, so, you know, you have that. And of course, in the following A Man on a Swing, you have Rancho Deluxe and 76. And of course, Man on a Swing is panned critically. Rancho Deluxe is panned critically. The word out is that Frank Perry's films are not as good as they were when he was with Eleanor Perry. And so you have this sort of desire, I think, to prove himself in some, in some sense. Um, and also, you know, around the time, um, of Rancho Deluxe, he'd become essentially disenchanted with film. He thought that film was not passe, but it just, you know, it was time. He didn't like the way direction films were being made and the way films were going into marketing and all that stuff. And so he decides he's going to return to Broadway where he first started. He started out in the theater. So he starts collaborating with playwright author Paul Zendel. And, you know, Zendel's perhaps best known as for the effect of the gamma ray on the man in the moon marigolds. And, um, you know, they do this play with Estelle Parsons called Ladies of the Alamo. Just like clockwork, play, you know, does great around the United States. And then when it comes to open on Broadway, it closes within a month. And then he becomes, uh, he decides he wants to make another film, but he revisits um, this old project he had really had a passion for a, a couple of years prior called The Front Runner. And The Front Runner was a, was a book based on, uh, it was written by Patricia, Patricia Nell Warren. It was a, it's a love story. It's a love affair between uh, um, a male track coach and his star male runner. And of course, no studio in 1976 or 77 is going to touch a purely gay themed picture. 
and he tries desperately for a few years to get this picture off the ground. He ends up buying, he buys the rights from Paul Newman. Actually, Paul Newman had owned the rights, had envisioned bringing the story to the screen with him in the lead role and Richard Thomas in the in the in the young man's role. Uh, Frank gets the rights. Uh, he envisions Nick Nolte or Clint Eastwood in the role. Of course, no studio will touch it, and so that leaves him pretty much you know, out sort of drifting in the sense that he can't really get a picture going. At this point, his, you know, he's on this diet, he's lost his weight, he's got this new refound uh, respect for life, and he sort of has to relegate himself to TV land. And he, you know, he crafts two films just before Mommy Dearest, uh, 1979's Dummy with LeVar Burton, and then uh, maybe... Uh, film. It really was to, intended to be a pilot for a series called Skag with Carl Malden and, and Piper Laurie and Peter Gallagher. And, um, you know, it was, it was 1977, 78. And the, you know, the landscape, the TV director was sort of known as the has been or the hack. He wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Lisa Linka Gladder, you know, who's doing Homeland or, you know, Jonathan Demme, who just passed away today. In fact, you know, his last work as a T, his last work is airing tonight as an episode of television he directed. So it wasn't the same landscape. And so in some essences, he's, he can't get a film going. So he's relegated to sort of this, you know, being this sort of hack working in TV land. Lo and behold, he encounters, uh, Frankie Blondes, uh, the producer of Mommy Dearest at a party thrown uh, in New York City. Um, his wife, Barbara, is a really great friend of Yablon's and uh, Yablon sits down with him and they start talking about um, this Joan Crawford book and it's, you know, it's just come out. It's everywhere. And Frank gets really excited. And he says, I've got, I've got to work on this project. So essentially, and the way I see this, this fitting into Frank's life is the sense that it's almost like it was a lifeline for him in the sense that he needed this project to keep going. To, to survive in some way, because what would have happened if he, if he had not have come to this, he may have done more television films. You know, he'd been he was fired off a of Skag, so you know, Abby Mann and him did not get along. He was fired off that dummy had gotten him rave reviews amidst the controversy where you know CBS was sued by the city of Chicago for you know the trying they didn't want to air the film because it the, the trial in which the story was based on was concurrent with the release date of the picture and they were worried that the the jury would see it and it would influence the verdict and so we had all this controversy going on at the same time so it was really a lifeline for him and he needed this picture you know and what better way to sort of reacclimate yourself into the into uh making films with a big hollywood film where he had never prior made a film for a studio let alone set foot necessarily shoot anything on a sound stage What's that next step after they start talking about this? Do they uh, hire a screenwriter or what? how does the process go to bring Crawford's book to the screen? Frank Gablons was really a driving force on this project. He, you know, he, of course, he had started out at Paramount. He had come up the ranks. You know, he was, I believe, president of Paramount when Coppola made the godfather there you know so there was he had he had severed his ties with paramount at this point he had no longer was sort of a studio brass he was more of an independent producer who had basically a green light at paramount and so he had bought the rights to the book from christina crawford the project was sort of kicked around at paramount for a while and they thought at first it may be relegated simply to just being a sort of tv movie of the week and, um, of course, Frank wasn't too happy about that, but he, in your blondes, and he, um, at first they had, he had talked about, uh, 
you know, Anthony Harvey was going to direct the picture. And, um, there was the first script, um, was written by the script says Christina Crawford based on her novel, based on her, her memoir. But it's actually, um, in truth was written by David Koontz, her first husband. That was the script that first landed at Paramount, um, through the collaboration with Frankie Blondes. Um, you know, uh, several writers went through the script after that. There was a, a Polanski who was, uh, I think, blacklisted during the, the Hollywood, you know, the time of that. He had written a couple drafts. Tom Stoppard had written a draft. Robert Bob Getchell had written a, a draft course best known for his work as um, the writer of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore by Martin Scorsese. And then you have... Um, Tracy Hotchner tackling the draft that I think was the fifth or sixth draft. And Hotchner, um, at the time was Jablonz's girlfriend and she was an aspiring writer. You know, she comes from sort of literary royalty. Her father is A.E. Hotchner, uh, novelist, uh, essayist, you know, uh, great friend and, and, uh, biographer of Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. And so, um, you know, her, her script really is what more or less got the picture greenlit. At Paramount because it had sort of been in purgatory for a while and the word was is that it was sort of a, a dead project right so it was her her script that sort of really um, really got the picture going because you know the previous drafts the the Getchell script the, the Polanski script um, I never read the Tom Stoppard script uh, I did hear it was quite awful but those drafts particularly the Getchell draft is very even in terms of uh, you know the presentation of the Crawford book right and but again this seems like the screenwriters didn't have the book is structured in such a strange way in the sense that they, the screenwriter could never particularly Getchell script he can never sort of figure out the um, you know it's like half the script was about Joan Crawford's life and the other half was about Christina's life right so that point of view shifts the Hotchter script sort of straighten that out to a, to a certain degree. And so in the Hatcher script is more or less, you know, 96, 97% of the film as you see it today. And, you know, following the Hotchner script, getting the green light, um, Deblons and Perry took the script to Palm Springs for a week. And this is where sort of an unsavory moment in Frank's history Frank Perry's history sort of evolved, pops up, and that's, you know, in the wake of the film, Frank Yablonz and Frank Perry both take credit for writing the script, right? And, and the script has essentially four names on it. It's, you know, through the, the Writers Guild, and it's Getchell, Hotchner, Perry, and Yablonz. So, you know, we can credit Yablonz and Perry for, for contributing roughly 4% of the script. I mean, there's some really pivotal scenes that I think they added, is particularly the final scene, which really sets up um, a great question, you know, which I think is added to the sort of uh, legacy of Joan Crawford and Christina Crawford's book. And that's, did she write this out of revenge or did she have other motives? Right. Cause that final scene was not the final scene of in the, you know, in the will reading of, you know, does she have the last, or I guess she has the last word as Xander Berkeley says, and, and Diana Scarwhite says, does she, that was a big contribution, I think on the behalf of Perry Yablons. Polanski seems like he was in the mix for a long time, and then he, if memory serves, he isn't credited at all. No, because he was the fifth writer, technically. So, I mean, I mean, he, he should have been, well, they're so different, right? They're very different scripts, but I think that has something to do with the whole, the rules of the, of the WGA and however that works, but... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, he was someone that was very close to Yablons. In fact, you know, Polanski adapted the novel that, um, 
you know, Frankie Blondes and Frank Perry made as their follow-up to Mommy Dearest Monsignor with Christopher Reeve and Genevieve Bougeau. And so he was definitely a close sort of compatriot of, of the whole collaboration. So he was, he was in the mix for a while. In fact, there are actually, um, early press reports, um, from Variety, for example, like well over a year prior to the film even getting the green light that Polanski was on board to write the script. I noticed with the, the draft that I read, the, the Hotchner draft that actually you pointed me to, um, as part of that, um, what was it? The final days of Joan Crawford yeah. website. I can't... Mm. The, the concluding chapters of Crawford or something like that. Yeah. That was remarkably similar to what we see. Just it felt like some things were kind of switched around and there was a little bit more of Joan Crawford's early life because she doesn't really even get Christine until an hour into the proceedings. Right. But yet some of those incidences are still there. It's almost like Christina kind of enters the picture a little bit earlier. I don't want to say in Joan's career, but maybe we kind of focus in on some of those later moments. Like I was, I was surprised. I was surprised personally to find that Mildred Pierce was kind of like her return. Um, I always in my mind had had Mildred Pierce as being an earlier film than what it was and not her triumphant, um, kind of F you to MGM. The film is supposedly supposed to take place between approximately 1939 or 1940 until 1977. And so, you know, right around the time that she adopts Christina, it's, you know, the whole box office poison thing, and she's sort of on her way out, right? So, and it's it's funny you mentioned Mildred Pierce, because in some ways, and I write a little bit about in the book, is that you can really draw a fun parallel between Mildred Pierce and Mommy Dearest in the essence and the way the narrative works, right? You have these, you know, ungrateful daughters that are, the mother is tasked to take care of them, and they're supposedly ungrateful, right? <laughs> so, and they're, both, and they're both sort of Greek tragedies in some sense, too, right? So, there's a lot, there's some parallels there between Mildred Pierce and Mommy Dearest, which I find really interesting. I had heard that Anne Bancroft was supposed to be uh, Joan for the longest time. Uh, how did she kind of enter the picture and then leave the picture? Yeah, well, she was, she was Jablonza's first choice, actually. And, you know, what more or less happened was, is that she was just sort of unhappy with the script. So, um, and this was relayed to me through interviews, but it was, you know, the public sort of notification was that, and this is what Frank Yablonge and both Frank Perry said in the press in the wake of the film was that Bancroft just wasn't happy with the script and that she wanted it rewritten, but she would never tell them what she wanted changed. In fact, the only thing she would say is she wanted Arthur Miller to rewrite the script for some reason. But, you know, word around the campfire is, is that really she just didn't like Frankie Blonde. Bancroft would have, I think would have been a really great I think she would have been really great in the role, especially when you think about Bancroft as a strong woman in terms of what she does in John Ford's final film, Seven Women, which is just a, that's an incredible performance. And, and, you know, when I first read that Bancroft was, was considered for the role of, of Joan Crawford, I didn't really see it until, you know, a year or so ago when I watched that John Ford film. And I was like, okay, now I see it because she would have been incredible because she's like really the alpha, the alpha male female of, John Ford's last film. And then I know that Perry had worked with Faye Dunaway and Doc before. So is the story of her showing up at his doorstep all dressed up as Joan Crawford, is that some sort of apocryphal Hollywood tale or is there any merit to that? So no, she actually showed up on Frankie Blondes' door. Perry. So yeah, 
So Perry was, you know, Perry was New York based more or less. So Yablons really, you know, they had talked the way, the way the story goes is that, you know, when Bancroft dropped out, they went to Faye based on a call that Yablons had gotten from Terry O'Neill, who was, uh, Faye Dunaway's, I don't, I'm not sure if they might have been married at that point or, you know, they were, you know, it being, they were in, in an intimate relationship, but they were, I'm not sure if they're married or not yet. But anyway, so, you know, it was the word around the campfire was that, you know, Faye was interested because Faye had been such a great admirer of Joan Crawford. So it was, you know, Yablons had went to see her on the set of, I think at the time she was filming Evita, the TV movie, or well, wasn't Evita, it was a TV movie about Ava Perone. But, and so he invited her over for dinner and she showed up dressed as Joan Crawford and he said, you've got the part. And how did the movie change as it went from that final draft of Yablons and Perry's to what we finally see in the finished film? Well, you know, not too much because the shooting script, surprisingly, is, is, I think it's like 143 pages. And so, you know, you know, roughly two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, allegedly there was supposedly four hours of footage that was assembled in the first cut, but I find that really hard to believe considering that it was, you know, shot for 46 days. It shot from January to April of 81. There were a few scenes cut. There was, um, in the shooting script, there was, you know, the opening as we see it now in the film, but then there was a scene that preceded, which had Joan shooting, um, on the ice follies of 1939. And then she was to meet, uh, Carol Ann, Rutania Alda's character and, and hire her to work. And so that scene with Rutania Alda was actually shot, but it was not included in the film for whatever reason. And the ice follies section of the script was not, um, was not shot either for, you know, budgetary or time constraints, I'm not sure, but that's pretty much it. I mean, there was just, you know, a couple of scenes here or there that didn't really make the cut. So I'm I'm assuming it's just because of the fact that the, the film was already running two hours, so they must have had to whittle it down in the considerations for a mainstream audience. Yeah, it's interesting, that Ice Folly scene, because we see her reading the script on the way to the studio before she, you know, does her famous spin to the camera, and we finally see Faye Dunaway revealed as Joan Crawford. And yeah, there's that scene of her shooting Ice Follies, and the her doctor is there and saying that she, what is it, like she fractured her leg or whatever, and she still, you know, the show must go on. So she... Rather than being fired, she goes out and works through the pain, and you can't tell that you know she's not even missing a step. And I like that that's kind of a counter to a later scene where they're not shooting some scenes of her uh, in a flashback so she can kind of be the, glor- the glamorous uh, younger Joan in, in Joan's eyes. And then she kind of uses her power to say, well, then I'll walk off the film and the whole thing will be ruined. And I like that counterpoint between those two scenes to say this is what she was like at the beginning of her career where she'll work with a practically broken leg versus, oh, I'm not getting my way. Well, then fuck you. I'll just walk off the film. I think you're right. I think it was an important scene. And I I know through talking with Frankie Blondes before he passed away, but also, you know, he's been vocal about it in, you know, the sort of press or what have you that's been done about the film you know for example on the paramount uh deluxe edition dvd talks about his really big regret was not getting that that scene in the film having time to film it because he really thought it was an important scene so i i've never heard frank comment on it certainly so i can only assume i mean perry and the blondes were sort of peas in a pod right they there was no riff no you know they were very 
much great collaborators. And Frank had, Yablons had wonderful things to say about Frank, you know, even though their, their collaboration was more or less, um, it was a great collaboration, but it didn't yield anything that the critics liked. Was there any fear before the movie came out or before they even started making it that this would, I don't know, almost be detrimental to people's careers that they're taking on a legend? Well, I mean, that's certainly the rumor. I've heard, I've heard stories from people that I've interviewed about the film that have talked about that. You know, I've seen some press spots where, you know, they, they say like, you know, this is going to, I mean, I think Christina Crawford, I've heard her talk about that as well too in interviews. Like, you know, when the book came out, Mommy Dearest came out, she was on Donahue and, you know, Bill Boggs and, you know, in, in retrospective years later on Larry King and, and, you know, she, she talked about that. Like, you know, no one dare touch the, uh, the legacy or, you know, Hollywood doesn't like it's, it's dirty laundry aired in public. But I mean, ultimately, I think with the exception of Faye, no one's career was really, really damaged per se. I mean, you know, all the rumors that have swirled about in the aftermath of, you know, Faye Dunaway being difficult essentially come out of this picture, right? Cause there was, uh, you know, there's a name I won't mention who was actually leaking stuff to the press about the, about the film because, um, it was such a hotbed of interest. And so, you know, every, every, I think it was every week, Marilyn Beck, the, the gossip columnist, I think for the LA times, I'm, think um it's slipping my mind now but anyway she would report little blurbs about the set like you know Faye was late to the set or she kept the shoot for four hours because she didn't like the wig i mean Ritania alda talks about this in her book as well um you know that she wouldn't come out of her dressing room because the shoulder pads in the in the costume weren't right so i mean every sort of and, and Faye certainly you know it, it's funny because in Faye's biography she wrote a biography it's called uh looking for gatsby and, um, you know, she blames the film for more or less changing or altering the, the track of her career. Who's to say, I guess, right? I mean, I don't see, certainly Frank Perry's career was not hurt. Certainly Frank Yablonz's career was not hurt. Ritania Alda's career was not hurt. Diana Scarlett's career was not hurt. So, I mean, she, she was nominated for an Academy Award just before the film came out for Inside Moves. So you know, I think if anyone was affected, it may have been Faye Dunaway. What have you heard about the uh, the atmosphere on set? It must have been a little bit tense knowing that both David Koontz, the uh, husband of uh, Christina Crawford, and then Terry O'Neill, the boyfriend at the time of uh, Faye Dunaway, were both executive producing this film. David Koontz was on board because it was sort of stipulated with the selling of the book, right? The rights to the book. So he was, he was sort of a no brainer in the terms of why he was there. But Terry O'Neill was, I mean, that was one of the demands of Faye Dunaway and on her condition of, you know, of working on the project. In fact, she had signed on the project, but it was only, you know, maybe like a few days or a week after they started shooting that she said, if you don't hire Terry as executive producer, I'm going to leave. And so it was one of her tantrums that, in fact, got him on board. I mean, Terry O'Neill is a photographer. So what the hell does he know about film production, right? So, yeah, there were tensions because, um, as Frank Perry put it, you know, these guys weren't going to lunch every day. Because, um, you know, you had David Koontz looking out for the interests of the book 
And then, of course, you had Terry O'Neill and Faye Dunaway looking out for the interests of uh, not only Faye Dunaway, but the legacy of Joan Crawford. Because, you know, through Faye Dunaway's eyes, this was really more a story about about um, age ca- age killing talent or age killing the actress in Hollywood. This was about protecting the legacy of Joan Crawford, who she clearly identified with in some in some respects. So, I mean, it's obviously there's going to be tension, but I mean, in terms of you know. You know, Perry was Frank Perry, and particularly Frank Bonds. They were never one to air their dirty laundry in public, right? So even and even in the wake of Mommy Dearest, you know, five six years later after the film, Frank Perry in in interviews and stuff is very vocal, never expressed a bad word. Always said he would work with Faye again in a heartbeat. And um, you know, ever according to Frank Bonds, it was a happy set. You know, contrary to what. Ritania Alda says in her book, right? But I mean, perspective is everything, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure, you know, for people, some people it was unhappy and some people it was great. I mean, but, you know, Perry, Frank Perry was an optimist, so he was, he would have never let it show if he was frustrated or unhappy. He was one to not necessarily, um, express his emotions in public or, you know, express discern or, or, uh, concern. It seems like studying or looking at Mommy Dearest can almost be a rabbit hole because you are looking at the film. You personally are looking at Perry and, and his movies, but then it seems like you could easily turn that into looking at the the book that Christina wrote, looking at Joan Crawford's life and just kind of going down that rabbit hole. How far did you fall while you were doing your research? I go until I hit the ground. I didn't count, but I have roughly, um, I was going through some of the stuff today in preparation talking to you, and I have, I guess I would say maybe uh, a nine-inch thick stack of manila folders of press articles and interviews and research associated with Mommy Dearest from stuff from the archives, um, Paramount publicity materials and the drafts of the scripts and stuff, all that stuff. So, and I have in terms of books, you know, I certainly read Mommy Dearest and one of the biggest influences on the film, you know, what people don't seem to want to discuss is the fact that, um, Perry, both Frank Perry and Frankie Blondes were very infatuated with a book called Conversations with Joan Crawford, which was published in 1980. Um, I think maybe a second, mine is published in 80, so you know, mine might be a second edition. But anyways, it's a fascinating book. It's just a really a sort of remembrance of Crawford with a really long form interview with her that was done on the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And even, you know, this is you know, an interview that clearly happened in 1962. And, you know, the interviewer, uh, his name is slipping my mind right now, but even in 1962, he's bringing up accusations that Hollywood, there are rumors in Hollywood that she is abusive to her kids, particularly Christopher and Christina. So this is 1962. So, you know, and, and it's, it's her, her answer is fascinating in the sense that, yes, she does, she does not say, I'm, I'm abusive. She says, listen, I'm strict. Maybe I've gone too far. I don't know. But, you know, maybe and maybe I shouldn't have had kids. Maybe, you know, we, us actresses, we dreamed of having um, houses and with white picket fences and fireplaces and, you know, all this stuff. And really, we were more focused on our career. It's not never ending, per se. But I mean, you know, there, the, long, the deeper you get into it, the more you see how much perspective matters and um, objective matters in the sense, like if you look at Donald Spato's Joan Crawford book, you know, he just 
does everything in that book to Christina Crawford short of uh, calling her a whore. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he writes, he, he even attacks her prose writing of Mommy Dearest. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, it, you know, there's something, it's it's fascinating and it's really scary. And I think about it from cultural terms in the sense that people care more about the legacy of Joan Crawford than the nature, the ch- child abuse. So, I mean, that's something I, I've thought about uh, quite a bit in terms of, of, you know, working on this project and why culturally we have such interests in things and why, you know, I think, but also it's fascinating too, because it ties in some way into the sort of uh, aesthetic of the film, right? Because you have the whole weird blend of, uh, uh, humor and horror or like camp and horror, right? Because in all intents and pur- for all intents and purposes, this is a horror film. The reveal of Joan Crawford, even at the beginning, is very much like a monster movie, right? It's almost like Frankenstein. And, you know, the famous no-wire hanger scene with, with Faye Dunaway walking into the room in the sort of white kabuki makeup, right? You have that scene, and it's fascinating when you learn that that was her idea, right? She brought that to the table. And it's even more fascinating is how she recapitulates that in her biography and says that it was not her idea. But yet we know from research that the two films that Frank Perry made the whole cast watch before they started shooting was Mildred Pierce and whatever happened to baby Jane. So I have to wonder if that Kabuki white makeup was not some way popped into her head from seeing Betty Davis in that white face in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Well, and then she also had that weird white face in Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which I was just like, well, that that's almost a, a connection between those two sure, films. Sure, sure. Yeah, who knows, right? Who knows? <laughs> it's crazy. But there's not a lot in Frank's archives about because it was, a, like I said, it was a transitional period for him. It was sort of a lifeline. It was a shot in the arm for him. And you know, I think in in retrospect, where he didn't necessarily have a bad thing to say, in retrospect, near the end of his life, he said, you know, maybe the time he was least happiest was, in fact, this period where he was out in Hollywood shooting films because he had he had relegated himself and prided himself on being an independent auteur. Right. He was he was an East Coast or he was an, he was an East Coast guy. He was worked most times shot shot almost everything around New York. Um, with the exception of Plays at Lays, which was shot in L.A. and Nevada. Of course, Mommy Dearest was shot in L.A., Monsignor Rome. Um, but other than that, you know, everything else was shot on the East Coast. So he, he didn't have to worry about studios interfering with him. And a lot of his films, you know, he was an independent filmmaker, but in essence, his films were bankrolled by studios. You know, or he had... um you know, he had deals set in place where the studio would finance his films on the agreements that they would distribute the picture, right? So, yeah, you know, you, United Artists distributed Ladybug, Ladybug, and, um, you know, they worked with him on, um, last summer, and, you know, um, at Universal did Played as It Lays, and so, I mean, he always had some sort of studio connections, but he was able to escape the sort of a studio interference. And how about you? What do you think of Mommy Dearest? Is that one that you go back to ever? I love it. I, I watch it often. I, it's a it's a really complex film, and I don't think that um, I don't think it's you know. There's been a lot said about it, and the fascinating thing about the film too is looking back at looking at how the not how the public how not how the public took the film in, but how the critics took the film in, and you know, there's a lot of negative things written about the film when it came out um, 
but yet it was, you know, it was a film I think that was budgeted at five million, you know, five hundred thousand dollars of that going to the sets, and um, you know, made like forty million or something, right? So it was a, it was a, it was in, in essence a blockbuster kind of, um, and so what does that say, right? What does that say that the critics hate it, but the public loved it? It has such an amazing legacy, and just that you can quote those lines so readily these days you know it's a fun movie right like contrary to what the critics even wrote about it it has become in some ways a cult movie and but not necessarily it's not like a rocky horror picture show cult movie it's something different and it's funny because i just i just you know here in atlanta we're doing the last few months we've been doing a frank perry retrospective and every month we've been showing a film at a theater and you know i talk about the film and then you know 50 60 people show up it's great anyways the first film we did was mommy dearest and i was really surprised and it was all sort of a younger crowd and i was really taken with i was Con- I was really observing where people responded to the film and, you know, where people laughed. And, you know, when when we had the um, don't fuck with me fellas line, the whole audience cheered. And, you know, people were laughing, um, you know, for example, at the beginning when when, um, you know, the guy comes over to more or less screw Joan. Right. And she said, take your shoes off. And he's like, what about the socks? And she's like, I can handle the socks. And, you know, it's the weirdest sort of cheesiest sexual innuendo ever and the whole audience was in giggles and i'm just like i kind of squirmed i was like oh man i don't think they wanted to laugh there (laughs) so but i mean you know i think it ties into and a lot of people you know at the time the film came out a lot of people critics were definitely conscious that it was it was a could approach this sort of strange sort of uh you know campiness slash kitsch kind of thing in some ways very similar concepts but very different in some ways as well and so um but i actually think like for me like i think um i think in a way like to call the film campy sort of sort of diminishes its its effect to a certain degree i think there's something way more aesthetically dense kind of going on in the film i think that's sort of what i i call like the meta performance performance aspects of it which is like knowing that joan crawford was sort of you know, this very dramatic person. And I think this is some, a very smart, this shows that Frank Perry's a very keen craftsman in the, in the making of this film is that he, he understands the theatrical elements. He understands the heightened drama that's not only in the narrative, but also in the character of Joan Crawford herself. I mean, if you read Christ, Christina Crawford's book, there are many instances where she's often talking about how Joan exaggerates and is very dramatic and she plays scenes within scenes. She's always acting. And I think that's, and so it becomes sort of a meta meta performance for me in the sense that you have Faye Croft, you have Faye Dunaway, who's essentially playing Joan Crawford, who in turn is very conscious of her own, her own character acting within scenes themselves. And I think Frank does things in the film very subtly. Like if you walk, go back and watch the film, one of the great, I was one of the scenes that everyone remembers, um, you know, of course, when Faye Dunaway's Joan Crawford attacks Dinah Scar, Scarwide as Christina and, you know, is on top of her and choking her. And, you know, you look at that, go back and look at that scene. You see like lights set up around the room that are in the frame. And it almost looks like they're performing on a stage. And it has that really interesting artifice to it, right? Which again, it ties in. I mean, if you're going to play by the Susan Sontag school of camp, then you also, you have this concept that, you know, artifice and exaggeration and theatricality in some essence, it ties into campiness, but I tend to sort of go in the school that it's more 
almost Shakespearean or, or theatrical, like um, a Greek tragedy, because it's very obvious to me that that that's kind of what's going on in the film. So I think in a, in to to call it campy in a way, I think diminishes its effect to a certain degree. I mean, I get why it's called. I, I get why people consider the film campy, and if you're going to again subscribe to the Sontag sort of school of thought, then yes, it it works well under that adage. But I think there's something way more dense and complex kind of going on um, from a theatrical point of view inside the film. And I guess to a certain degree, that in fact could make the film a sort of failure too, right? Because again, your, your filmmakers are some way assuming that the audience in some degree, in some way is going to automatically know that level of depth to the, to the chronology of Joan Crawford or, you know, they're going to have read several Crawford books or they may have, you know, more than likely read Christina Crawford's memoir at that time. So maybe they're assuming that an audience is coming to the film already knowing that perhaps. So if, if audience is coming in blindly, then yes, maybe then that is a major uh, point of order in the sense that we could consider this film some sort of failure on a certain level. Can you talk a little bit about the way that they tried to remarket the film after it came out? When the film came out, it was, you know, Frankie Blondes had come up through the Paramount ranks in marketing, right? So, um, you know, originally the concept was they were going to just release, um, you know, just the poster, the poster that is, exists today as the film, the sort of elegant Faye Dunaway shot in black and white and the sort of corner torn on the bottom. And that was going to be the marketing. And, um, you know, on that opening week, the film uh, had no test screenings. They did no test screenings for the film, um, except for they did one screening in New York for Friends. Uh, they rented out the top of some building and invited all these famous people to watch the film. And the opening weekend, a lot of people that worked on the film were in L.A., including some of the um, studio execs. And, you know, they walked in and saw people laughing in spots. And they, they literally, they panicked. And so they thought that the only way to really salvage this is going to, we're going to have to change the marketing and sort of play up these sort of camp aesthetics that are seemingly in place here. And so the marketing changed from this sort of elegant sort of picture of Joan Crawford to, um, you know, the meanest, meet the meanest mother of them all or the big poster, no more wire, no wire hangers. And so they started playing up the sort of shock value in the film as it means to sort of save sort of save and and you know it turned into a sort of rocky horror type film right because in essence in the first you know a few weeks it was playing there are kids popping up at screenings with cleanser and wire hangers and you know you know just like in rocky horror they were you know shooting rain guns in the air uh, it, was, it was it was happening but i mean it, it was a, i mean it played for a long time and it's interesting because the film comes you know comes really at the the sort of end of the sort of second wave of feminism, right? Like it really hits right around that time, the 80, just before the Reagan era comes into play. And, you know, this country of ours is, is, uh, recapitulated into this sort of, uh, era of 1950s idealism and, and, um, nostalgia and Vietnam nostalgia and, um, you know, stoicism and this male assertiveness and, and the economy is great. And I'll run the flip side. Yeah, Columbia, Columbia dude, Columbia pictures, um, you know, a few months before, then re-releasing actually Kramer versus Kramer at the same time, which is a very much another female-oriented picture, right? A very proud feminism type of picture. So it's coming at the end of that too, which is a really fascinating thing to me. You know, Frank was Frank was very interested in his in his. You know, he was very conscious on this film of the sort of theatrical concept like the, he saw it as very theatrical he's he saw it as a greek myth he saw it his idea was that he was wanted to show 
um, the notion of reality versus the image, right? And how we perceive something and how something is perceived in public, but then underneath that image sort of lies an abyss, right? Or this weird darkness. So he was very conscious of, of the theatricality of it. I mean, he, he came from the theater and I think you, you see little sort of hints in the film. You know, like you see Diana Scarwhite as Christina in the sort of third act, or, you know, the second half of the picture, she's reciting a speech from Antigone, right? Which is, you know, uh, Antigone, a play about rejection of authority and worthy of one's parents or, in, you know, acting in place of one's parents, right? So you have all these very still theater nods here and there throughout the picture. What did this do for his career? He worked with the Blondes again on Monsignor, which was a complete failure. I mean, you know, Mommy Dearest at least played in theaters for a certain amount of time. Monsignor was yanked out of theaters. I mean, it, it was, in, in some ways, it's probably, people probably construe it as Frank's worst picture. But I think the film, as it stands, has a, it's, I think it has some of Frank's finest directorial moments in it. But it's one of those things, again, that's weirdly... It's weirdly, it's miscast tremendously. It's got Christopher Reeves and Genevieve Bougeau and, you know, like Robert Prosky is in it and Fernando Ray from the Boom All movies. And it's a, it's, and it's basically two hours of talking heads. I mean, it's a story of, um, Christopher Reeve is, uh, and oh, Jason Miller's in it. Christopher Reeve is, um, um, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, he's a cardinal and he goes to the Vatican to, and the Vatican's having money problem. And so he concocts this scheme to swindle or to launder cigarettes through the through the the mafia. And I mean, it's a Godfather three. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's it's got that sort of you know strange uh, foretelling of the Godfather three narrative going on, right? So it, it has some really great moments, but it's just really strange to see Christopher Reeve, who you know this and this is eighty uh, eighty two. 83, so he's fresh on everyone's mind as Superman, right? Or somewhere in time in Superman. And so he's clearly a role that he's taking to sort of get out from underneath the cape. So he does that picture, and then, um, you know, they're both... Mommy Dearest is a critical disaster, financial success. Monsignor is a critical disaster and a box office, or critical disaster and a box office disaster. Once again, he's relegated to TV land. And so he does the JFK one-man show. From there, he meets Susan Isaacs, a fellow East Coaster, up-and-coming novelist uh, from Female Voice, and um, he crafts uh, his next two films based on Susan Isaacs' stories, uh, Compromising Positions, which is a very, um, I feel, ahead of its time for a set of foreshadows, Desperate Housewives, and it's a, in some ways it's sort of a classic um not a noir, but a detective sort of forties kind of detective story, but with a lead female uh, protagonist played by Susan Sarandon, and all cast with New York theater actors, and it's it's funny, it's satirical, and um, it's got beautiful cinematography by Barry Sonnefeld. He'd come off of Blood Simple, and um, critics see it and they hail it as Frank Perry's return to form. He's back on top of the world in some sense, and um, you know it's it's yet it's a film that not people haven't seen because it's unavailable on home video, never been released on DVD. It's a wonderful film. I know a lot of people have a special place in their heart for it. I like Frank Perry. I saw that film, and the only thing I can remember about it, and I have to go back now and track it down to see if I 
am remembering correctly or completely misremembering, and I don't know if this was a problem with maybe the um, the aspect ratio or something, but I seem to remember a scene in that movie where there are two women talking in a car, and you can actually see a hand reach up from the back seat and touch one of the women's elbows, and that kind of is her cue to start talking. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's an aspect ratio thing. <laughs> I've never seen that, and I've seen the film like you know fifty times. Well, and you know, and one thing I want, we should say about Mommy Dearest too is you know we can this kind of goes along with um, how we feel about the film is that, and this goes back to the sort of um, maybe you feel it's a sort of misstep, but I mean the film is made in a very traditional style, right? Like I, I consider Frank to be sort of what I call a consciously classical filmmaker. In, under the under guises that you know he's very much like a George Cooker who who likes working with uh, who's often known as a a woman's director who, who reveled in theatrical and literary adaptations was not necessarily um, that interested in you know film panache or film flair but was more interested in working with actors but I, you know the film is made very much in the in a 40s style right not not only just the costumes but the sets but you think about how think about the sort of cheesy I call it cheesy because it is, but I mean the Britannia Elda's makeup at the end of the film when she comes as the old Carol Ann and it's very it's very awful, right? But when you think about the way they made it, so in in essence it, one of the maybe big missteps here was the fact that this was not released in black and white. Because it's very much shot for black and white, like even the lighting on the set, you had all these old Hollywood guys working on it. You had Joan Crawford's makeup people coming back, her her costume designer coming back to work on the film. All these people of the golden era of Hollywood, and you know they're they're, they're releasing this film in color. So I have to wonder how different. And I, I mean, I have seen it. I've turned the contrast down on my TV and watched the film play in black and white, and it's a different experience. I mean, the question here is. How do we know? I mean, this is the critics, the critics issue and some of the audiences issue too is how do we know this is the real Joan Crawford? And as Faye Dunaway once said, we can never know who the real Joan Crawford is. The truth, the truth only here lies between Christina Crawford and Joan Crawford. So for me, this is not Faye Dunaway portraying Joan Crawford. This is Faye Dunaway portraying Joan Crawford in something like William Castle's straitjacket or something. Do you know? Something really strange. Which, you know, helps me sort of work through the sort of over the topness of her performance. But so you can, you think about that and also combine what we know about Crawford and how every scene is a scene and, you know, acting, she's acting in every moment of her life. You can really get a new perspective on the film when you look at it in black and white. It's, it's really fascinating. So how is the Perry book progressing and do you have a release date in mind for it yet? Yeah, we'll be out in the summer next year pretty much done. I'm just uh, rewriting some chapters right now and finishing up a couple other ones. I've got a couple interviews I've got to do another round on and it won't be until the summer though. I'm going to go back to New York and sit down with um, Frank's longtime assistant turned producer who has the box of materials that are sitting uh, in his garage relating to Frank Perry and he worked with Frank from pretty much Doc all the way to the end. So there's stuff in there that I haven't seen yet. So, which is scary to me in some degree, you know, but yeah, we're definitely on time and uh, everything's looking good. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a long road because I started this project in 2014, I believe. And 
I didn't work on it for a year because of legal issues with the with the state and the holdings. But um, yeah, so I'm happy to finally get it done and uh, and out there. Well, Justin, where's the best place for people to keep up with you these days? I would say Facebook, but I'm not on Facebook anymore, really. Whatever. I got a website. It's, I think it's justinboson.net. Yeah. Well, I will be sure to link to that from projection-boot.com. And thank you. It has been a real pleasure talking with you, sir. Yep. I'll talk to you soon. We are back, and we are talking about Mommy Dearest. Now, Joshua, by the time that this airs, the show Mommy Queerest that you are in will have already happened. But is that the first time that this has happened, or is this kind of like a continuing thing? Do you do this often? It's a continuing thing uh, that my friend Hecklina and I have been uh, performing for years and years, probably well over a decade at this point. How does that compare with Mommy Dearest? Well, it's definitely for the cult audience, the fans of Mommy Dearest, who enjoy it in that very particular way as a, as a piece of camp and comedy. Um, and, and basically what we do is sort of, uh, take it and, and it's very hard to, to lampoon Mom, Mommy Dearest because it's already, how, how do you, how do you make Faye's performance bigger as a drag <laughs> like, almost you know impossible so what i do as a parody writer is often reimagine these things as a, as a queer experience so in my show it is actually about peaches christ my drag character you know being an aging drag queen in this world of competitive you know drag and and desperate to stay relevant and desperate to uh, be in the papers. And, and so I adopt a drag daughter, which is a thing in the drag community. We have daughters. So um, I adopt a drag daughter who is actually my nemesis, Hecklina, but she's disguised herself as a little girl named Hectina. And I guess I'm so stupid I don't realize it's her. You know, and, and then of course we we, we reenact all the, the stuff that you would love from the movie, but it's through our adult drag characters. So it gets really the comedy is very blue and twisted, but we're also able to uh, you know, do the wire hanger scenes and, and all of that. So it's it's not a it's not a group a bunch of men um, acting out the movie Mommy Dearest. It is its own weird, twisted thing, but it has all the stuff that you're going to want to see. Do you get to cut down an hour and string? I do, yeah. Tina! Bring me the axe! You know, we just milk that for all it's worth, and it's super, you know, ridiculous. And, um, and yeah, we have the... So we have the axe scene, we have the choking scene, we have the wire hanger scene, of course... Um, and then some, some scenes we might not have the whole scene, 
but I'll work in a, you know, don't fuck with me, fellas. I'll work it into another scene because we obviously in a 75 minute drag parody, we can't do everything. I mean, there isn't much of Mommy Dearest that the fans don't love. You know, there's not a lot of fat to cut from that movie when you're, you know, doing a tribute to it. People love everything. Like, we do the birthday scene where me and Hecklina are wearing the matching, you know, mother-daughter dresses. Uh-huh. And just when the curtain opens, the audience goes nuts because, you know, we're in the costumes. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's really fun. There is a, or it's, it's probably still available out there someplace, but there's a, a version of Mommy Dearest where um, the DVD commentary is done by John Waters. So kind of like uh, giving his seal of approval for that. And I love his commentary on this where he's talking about how Divine would have loved to have seen the film, or Divine loved the movie, I'm sorry, and that Divine rooted for Joan Crawford, and he kind of brings up the point that Joan Crawford, even though she's the villain of the piece, she's kind of the protagonist at the same time, and it's just this kind of weird way that she's being positioned as both the enemy and the protagonist all at the same time. And then the way he... I'm trying to remember the exact phrase that he uses, but he he talks about how this is one of the first drag performances that was done by a woman. So not like a woman dressing as a man, but this is a woman who is basically playing a drag version of Joan Crawford in his mind, where she just exaggerates everything. Those eyebrows, he's always talking about the eyebrows and he's just, you know, like how they must've been stenciled on. And you're right. As far as like, she can't really get bigger than she is because she is huge in this performance. She just goes everywhere with this there is no stone unturned there is no tree that is not cut down by the time she's done with this performance yeah and i think you know i think he's totally right where as a drag performer um you know it's really fun to take something small and precious and blow up the comedy and make it bigger but when you've got you know as far as another performance like that i think about um glorious Swanson as norma desmond and you know, uh, that feels like a woman doing a drag performance. But there, there aren't very many, you know. Um, and partly I think it's because men are rewarded for these types of performances in a way that seems extremely unfair to me. I believe that men, when they play uh, a part this way, and I can give you a lot of examples, Al Pacino as Scarface, Jack Nicholson in almost anything, you know, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, where they're playing it so over the top and so big and, and chewing up every bit of scenery. Men win Academy Awards. They're applauded for it. And when women do it, they've, they've gone too far. And somehow it's out of people's comfort zones to see a woman unhinged. And I think it's just good old fashioned sexism because that that sort of style of camp acting, men get rewarded for and women are often punished for it. And I think Faye, in many ways, was delivering a, a, a performance much like Al Pacino or Jack Nicholson or a lot of male actors would. And, you know, it was, she just went too far and, and people said, this is ridiculous. You're, you know, they, they mocked her for it. You know, she was criticized. 
Well, you mentioned Showgirls earlier. I mean, this is so close to that that way that that Nomi, that Elizabeth Berkeley was so big in that, and just you know, people were laughing at her. And that you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, that movie ruined her career." Luckily, she's still with us, and she's still doing a lot of things. But she was kind of set up for stardom and was torn down immediately, in kind of the same way. Faye Dunaway, I, I'm trying to remember, there was at least one other performance, but then I know next thing she's doing after that, it's uh, Supergirl, which is just, you know, a, a, a very unfortunate step for everyone involved. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely was not fair. Whereas uh, you brought up uh, Pacino as Scarface, Pacino as um, in Scent of a Woman, I think is, to me, the ultimate hoo-ha performance that he does, where he just fucking balls out and and it, it, that is ridiculous to me that should have gotten laughed off the screen but since it's al pacino people just fell over themselves to say what a fantastic performance that was showgirls works as camp for a very simple reason it's purely and simply all about eve with tits when I, once i realized that it was a remake of all about eve i, I re-watched it and i went yeah this movie works because it is that kind of over-the-top camp silliness it's got no reality to it it's just um a lot of fun and very very silly and again i i i i hate to kind of be the sort of uh the person constantly pointing out sexism in hollywood but when that when that movie was released and the public completely misunderstood it and you know half the audience walked out at the Cannes film festival horrified you know the person that was really traumatized the most was elizabeth berkeley she was ridiculed she was blamed she was thrown under the bus and if you ask you know i'm friends with patrick bristow and rena riffle and people who are in the movie and anyone who was on that set will tell you elizabeth was delivering a performance and then verhoven would go in and tell her to ratchet it up a notch bigger bigger i want it bigger take after take after take and so Elizabeth is giving her director what he is asking for and delivering lines from a script written by Esther House, which is ridiculous. If you read the script, you know, it is insane. It is the movie that we see. Right. And those men were never blamed for showgirls. You know, Elizabeth took all of the blame. It's just not fair. Yeah. It didn't hurt Carl McLaughlin's career at all. Uh, Not at all. No. And in some ways, it didn't really hurt Gina's career either. And I think partly it's because she got to sit back and play the drag queen. You know, Gina, mm. Gina, is, Gina Gershon is really the drag queen in that movie who you accept as the drag performance. She's the nemesis. She's the villain. But Nomi, who was the protagonist and, and complicated and bizarre and had all those ridiculous lines and the over the top acting style, it, it just seems, you know, it's like, I just feel bad for Elizabeth Berkeley because, you know, she she was doing what she was asked to do. And when the shit hit the fan, they let her take, you know, all of the blame. And I think that happens all of the time, to act, you know, not all of the time, but it happens a lot more to actresses and women in the industry than it does to men. You see it again and again. You see it in Australian movies. You see it in Australian television. You see it in Hollywood as well. Um, that stuff's got to end because it's inhibiting us from seeing good roles, good actors, and good films. Right. If if a woman doesn't feel safe enough to go over the top to give that type of performance, I mean, yeah, that is it's handcuffing every single female performer that's out there. 
Joshua, you brought up a point earlier that I kind of wanted to follow up on. You were saying that people of your generation might not have necessarily had those um, like gay icons as far as uh, Judy Garland and Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, some of these icons. Uh, Marlena Dietrich. I mean, so many. Yeah. I'm curious who were some of those icons for people of, well, I guess we're pretty much the same age, for, but for our generation. Well, I can speak to who they were for me, you know, a weirdo, a weirdo queer kid growing up uh, in Maryland. Elvira, uh, Cassandra Peterson's Elvira was a huge um, inspiration for me, and I was obsessed with Elvira. And in a lot of ways, Madonna, you know, as, as far as a pop star goes, I mean, not not a good actress, but, you know, gay men of my age definitely look to and Dolly Parton and Cher, you know, there's there there definitely are these um, women that, for whatever reason, really speak to gay men um, as the divas, the icons, and and I think those would be my generation's divas that we kind of grew up worshiping. I was a little more cult, so you know, for me, I would also have to throw in Pam Greer and uh, you know uh, a lot of the women <laughs> from sl- slasher movies, you know, a lot of Final Girls, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, but I was a big I was a big horror fan and a cult movie fan, but, you know, I definitely Madonna. I think Madonna universally, you know, was that for a lot of people and certainly Cher. Yeah. When you were starting to talk, I was like, okay, yeah, I guess Madonna would have been right around that age for us as far as, I mean, she embraced Marlene Dietrich, especially during the Vogue era, but she seemed to be that kind of, she was almost, or, or probably is almost like Joan Crawford in the way that she has invent, reinvented herself over the years to see a Joan Crawford from those early silence to see her in, you know, the, the early talkies, to compare that to Mildred Pierce, to compare that to the William Castle days, to compare that to Trog. I mean, that those are very different actresses that we're seeing. And, and sometimes, I mean, when I first saw what Joan Crawford looked like when she was a young actress, I didn't even recognize her because I was used to that later Joan, especially with the kind of more severe hair that she would have, you know, thinking of like the, the straight jacket role and uh, whatever happened to baby Jane, because her hair is a, a mess in that one. But yeah, just to, uh, uh, just to even see what she looked like when she was a young woman and to, to know that she had changed herself so much. I didn't know. I was watching a documentary today, and I need to find out if this is true. I heard that she actually had some of her back teeth removed to change her jawline, to change the way that her cheeks would show up. And I'm just like, that seems pretty intense, but I kind of wouldn't put it back past her because she just seemed like such an intense woman. Yeah, I know that a number of people in Hollywood did do that. I don't know specifically whether Joan Crawford did it, but I know that a number of actresses did that. And there are other people that had ribs removed to give their waistline a slimmer look. All sorts of weird and, and you know, just kind of intrusive surgeries to you know, keep them in the public eye. So, Joshua, I know you're doing Mommy Queers, and you said that you've been doing this for, gosh, a decade now. Do you know of any other do like because you do the the midnight mass in San Francisco? Is is Mommy Dear something that you would 
show to an audience other than um, outside? <laughs> I know you do it outside of the United States, but do you ever do screenings in the U.S. and kind of have this as almost like a revival kind of thing? Yes. Uh, Mommy Dearest has definitely been one of our uh, staples over the years, for sure. Unlike a lot of cult movies that I, you know, I started doing this 20 years ago, <laughs> a lot of them kind of fade away or are sort of generational. Um, but I will say that, you know, Mommy Dearest and Showgirls stand the test of time for whatever reason. Um, and then what we're seeing is whatever happened to Baby Jane kind of faded away at some point where uh, the, the, the original cult audience kind of stopped coming. However, with the, you know, popularity of feud, I'm almost wondering if maybe it's going to come back or if young people aren't going to be introduced to it. So it sometimes changes over time, but not Mommy Dearest. I think because partly it has shown on television so much in the United States over the years. And anything that gets shown on television a lot can build a cult audience in people's homes. So lately for me, a lot of the cult movies are younger people coming up to me and going, hey, I don't understand why you have not screened, uh, let's say, Hocus Pocus. I say, because it's that terrible Disney movie that nobody likes. <laughs> and these these kids say, you don't understand. I watched it over and over and over again. I grew up with it. And rewatching that film as a programmer, I realized, oh, that Midler is doing drag. It is a drag performance for children. This is their their version of Elvira, you know. Uh, so so then I'm able to you know get my, wrap my head around it and screen it. Um, so I'm always looking for new things. But Mommy Dearest has never faded. You know, I've never had a problem moving tickets for it or there being interest. So I do wonder why for a movie that's you know as old as it is, 1980. You know, you usually even even things like other nostalgia films from the 80s that I used to screen a lot, like The Goonies or uh, Poltergeist, and we would do a show called Poltergeist. We we can't do anymore because my peers won't come out. They're they're at home watching Netflix or whatever. But now, Mommy Dearest, it's always stayed in vogue. And what are the audience reactions like for your screenings of it? Like this show that we're doing, we're actually not screening the movie. We're just doing the show. We used to do the show and the movie, and, and sometimes we do that as well. So when we do the show on its own, um, it's much like watching it. the show as if you're watching the movie. Certain lines, like no wire hangers ever, is screened by every single person in the auditorium, you know, like a screening of Rocky, Rocky Horror. <laughs> they really get into it. And, you know, they, 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 they scream out the lines um, for other, you know, because I am not one of your fans. You know, they scream it along with um, Christina in a way that is hilarious and celebratory. And it's funny, too, because unlike Showgirls, where everyone is clearly rooting for Nomi, like they just love Nomi. Um, I would say when cult audiences watch Mommy Dearest, they actually root for both of them. They're rooting for Joan and they're rooting for Christina. They're just loving it all. The don't fuck with me, fellas, this isn't my first rodeo. I mean, 
those are awesome scenes when it comes to like female empowerment. It's just like, holy shit. She comes in here and she just takes over everything. And that's another weird cut too, where it's just like, you know, oh, here's Al Steele, the Pepsi magnate. And he's telling me that I need to, you know, take it a little bit easy when it comes to, you know, redoing this apartment and then cut to her and she's all dressed in black and Al's dead. It's like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) what just happened? That's one of the most awkward cuts for me. It's like, oh, okay. And then her taking over the board is just like, wow. We have retired you from the board of directors. You drove Al Steele to his grave, and now you're trying to stab me in the back? Forget it! I fought worse monsters than you for years in Hollywood. I know how to win the hard way. Miss Crawford, we don't want any hard feelings. You don't know what hard feelings are until I come out publicly against your product, and you'll see how much you sell. Please, Miss Crawford, it's hardly necessary to make threats you surely don't mean. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. You forget the press I delivered to Pepsi was my power. I can use it any way I want. It's a sword. It cuts both ways. If it was that without her abusing Tina, I'd be like, yeah, go Joan, go Joan. And then even when it is that scene, I'm just like, yeah, you do it. You take over. You show those guys, those guys what's going on. I'd love to see you know, a woman come in and just bust through that glass ceiling. This is great. Then you've got the other parts to it where it's just like, okay, this is much more complicated. Thank you for challenging me. <laughs> yeah, there's also that funny bit with Al where he says, I'll work something out. And then the next thing he drops dead and she gets all of the shares. So it's almost like he decided to drop dead so she'd have money. So there's that silly aspect of the movie as well. All right, guys, let's take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Somebody's coming. Toward the end of the war in Vietnam, an unusually high percentage of American servicemen suddenly manifested symptoms of psychosis. Most of them were in combat or slated for combat, and had no prior history of mental disturbance. These facts, plus the epidemic scope of the problem and the controversial nature of the Vietnam War, led American authorities to wonder whether many, if not most, of the men were faking. Among its inmates was an astronaut who, during final countdown, had aborted a mission into outer space. Side manner is that? Lieutenant Reno is adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. Labor of love, a fucking headache, but goddammit, somebody's got to do it. If God exists, then he's a fake, or more likely a foot. A giant, all-knowing, all-powerful foot. Can you prove there's a foot? 
There are some arguments from reason. Are those the things we use to justify dropping atomic bombs on Japan? What the fuck? It's psychodrama, Major. The inmates are playing the role of allied prisoners of war. Bullshit! We're their prisoners! I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Joshua and Terry. Joshua, I think I know a little bit of what's going on with you, with your Mommy Queer show, but what else is happening for you? This summer, I'm going to be in Provincetown, uh, Massachusetts, for the summer, uh, doing uh, a, a parody show of 9 to 5, as well as one for Grey Gardens. So if any of your listeners are going to be in Provincetown, look us up at the Art House Theater. And Terry, what's the haps with you? I know you're uh, usually pretty darn busy with uh, your own podcast. Yeah, I've got uh, Paleo Cinema Podcast and the Martian Driving Podcast, so I, I alternate weeks doing those. I'm also doing a gig with ABC Local Radio in Darwin in the Northern Territory here in Australia, where we're talking about movies, so I do that every fortnight and just kind of shoot the shit about movies with them. And I'm kind of dabbling with a YouTube channel, doing a little bit about the history of cinema. Uh, I haven't been able to give it as much time as I'd like to, but it's definitely out there, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more in that area. How would you describe paleo cinema to people that aren't familiar with it? It's movies over the 20 years old, so that's the, the cutoff point for them. And I tend to do movies I like. I did try doing some movies I didn't like, and kind of dissecting them, but it didn't work. But it could be anything. Uh, I'll keep away from genre cinema because Martian Driving Podcast takes care of that. But old classic Hollywood films, uh, film noir, comedies, musicals. I'm actually doing two episodes with musicals over the next few weeks with a couple of friends. So we're looking at things like Calamity Jane and 42nd Street and all of those kind of films over the next bit. So I try to kind of, these days I try to have theme months for the uh, podcast and yeah just shoot sometimes i do it solo sometimes with other people but for the most part it's kind of looking at things people might have missed in cinema and uh just hipping them to the good stuff paleo cinema i want to say that that was one of the first podcasts that i listened to how long have you been doing this now 10 years oh geez um yeah it's been going 210 episodes so far and yeah, I just started doing it. I heard about podcasting. I did a couple of chat podcasts with my wife, Sally. And then I thought, I want to talk about movies because the best conversations I have with friends are about movies and about movies they might not have seen and things like that. So I, I started that. I started out with a, an $11 microphone sitting on the desk and it's been going ever since. And where can people go to find out more about your podcast? Paleocinema.podbean.com and martiandriving.podbean.com. And also, there's um, if they look me up on Facebook, I'm pretty easy to find, and they can find out a lot of stuff through there as well. And Joshua, how about you? Where can people go to keep up with you? Uh, I'm on all the normal social media platforms as the Peaches Christ, so facebook.com slash Peaches Christ, and Instagram and Twitter, so they can find me there. And then, and then uh, of course, peacheschrist.com. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episodes. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth podcast take over the world. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.